Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thank you for joining me this Thursday, November 30th. Did you listen to the news at the top of the hour? I think I feel like a golden mole today. Yes, I can just surf through the sand and I'm very rare and hardly ever poke my head up. Uh, I think we should all t- sort of, for 2024, we should channel our inner golden mole. I like that. I like that thinking. There's lots going on today. Oh, my goodness. Um, in Congress right now, they are debating whether or not to expel New York Congressman George Santos. Yes, Santos, he of the fraud and the theft and the lies. Kevin McCarthy wouldn't have done it. Kevin McCarthy made it clear that as long as Santos voted the way he was told to vote, that he was okay in his book. A OK. Because um, somebody being an absolute lying con man is okay, I guess, as long as they're your lying con man. Right, Kevin? Well, uh, George Santos, um, the Ethics Committee recently, as I've mentioned, finished their investigation of him. They published a 56-page report that they turned over to the Department of Justice because they felt that what they had found was so egregious that it was actually criminal in nature about the things George Santos was doing, especially with uh, donors' money and with donors' credit cards. And here's, here's the real reason why there's a real possibility, not a certainty by any chance, that the vote tomorrow, which... Uh, will determine whether or not Santos becomes the sixth congressperson in our history to be kicked out by his brethren and uh, and sisters in Congress. But um, 2024 is looming, and particularly the Republican congresspeople from the state of New York are very worried that voters will punish them, that they will be vulnerable if people can say to them, you know, Why didn't you do anything about George Santos? Why did you just let him sit there? Since Santos represents a congressional district in New York, the congresspeople in New York are particularly nervous about what he will do, the influence he will have on their chances to stay in office. So as is uh, often the case, whereas just doing the right thing wasn't enough, Now we have their self-interest involved, and that's going to be very, very different. George Santos said that he absolutely would not resign. The current Speaker of the House, Mr. Johnson, had a conversation with him recently, um, telling him, did, you know, apparently, according to Santos, Johnson said to him, do you really want to be a congressman? One of the few in the history of the United States with an asterisk by his name, asterisk connoting that he was kicked out. But he said Johnson didn't tell him what to do. And in fact, Johnson is not really telling anybody what to do. Uh, Johnson is not um, trying to get the Republicans in Congress to vote one particular way or the other on George Santos. He's sort of leaving 
leaving it alone, letting people do what they would decide is in their own best interest. <sighs> this morning, uh, New York Congressman Mark Molinaro was um, on CNN talking to John Berman, and uh, he told Berman um, that Santos was complaining that he was being bullied by the people in Congress who want him gone. Listen to this exchange. In this news conference he gave this morning, he seemed to imply, I have a lot of other dirt on members of Congress, and maybe you're about to hear that too. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, first, uh, I wouldn't believe anything George Santos has to say. He's proven that he's incapable of, of, of leveling the truth. In fact, I, I don't know that he knows the truth. But, but more importantly, he's doing exactly what con men do. And, by the way, juveniles do, which is instead of taking responsibility for his own action, pointing the finger and suggesting, oh, he's no worse than, than anyone else. He, he is. He, he has conducted a, 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 a fabulous fraud, manufacturing his entire life, uh, in order to defraud voters of the honest option to select their representative in one of the greatest deliberative bodies in the world. He defrauded donors and took those dollars to benefit himself personally. There are standards of conduct in public service. He has not met them, and, and he continues uh, to avoid any amount uh, of uh, sort of personal responsibility. Uh, that investigation has produced uh, a comprehensive report that, without question, says he is not only a con man, but a criminal, and he shouldn't be here. Um, did I mention that um, Mark Molinaro is a Republican congressman? That wasn't a Democrat trashing George Santos. That was a Republican and a, a fellow Republican from the great state of New York. Says he's done with Santos. There were reports yesterday that um, I don't know whether Politico talked to them directly or did some kind of survey, but According to reporting in Politico, there were 95 Republicans who said they were absolutely ready to expel George Santos. Um, some were absolutely rock solid. There was another group of Republicans who said that they were thinking about it. It's assumed now that we have this ethics report, which uh, which some Democrats said they were waiting for. Um, because last time, like, for instance, last time there was a vote to expel Santos, Jimmy Raskin voted against it. And his argument was there's an ethics investigation. There's um, he hasn't gone to trial on any of the charges he faces. So until somebody is willing to file a report on this guy, you know, I'm willing to not exactly give him the benefit of the doubt, but at least wait until there was something firm that they could act on. Um, they got that when the House Ethics Committee filed um, a scathing report on Santos and all of his uh, shenanigan. So um, Jamie Raskin was on uh, All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC last night, and uh, he told Chris that he now plans to change his vote and he will be one of the people voting to expel George Santos from Congress tomorrow. Listen to a little bit about what Raskin said last night. Well, I plan to vote yes. I mean, the logic for my vote last time was simply this. We don't want to set a precedent yeah, where people yeah. are being expelled without either a criminal conviction in 
you know, federal or state court or else uh, an ethics finding that they've engaged in serious misconduct that we can uh, judge once we're able to read the report. Well, that report came out. It was unanimous. It's extremely damning about the way that he stole campaign donors money for personal purposes, whether trips to Las Vegas or Botox and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Just outrageous abuse of the campaign process, outrageous lies being told to the voters. And, you know, the only argument I could torture out for him now is that all of the lies he told, which he certainly did tell, and the evidence is overwhelming, do not add up to Donald Trump's big lie, which still a majority of the Republican <laughs> caucus stands by. Um, and But that's, that's not true. an argument, I think, that should move any Democrat. So Congress today is uh, taking to the floor to debate the pros and cons of expelling George Santos. He said that he is not going to resign. Um, he is going to stick around as long as he possibly can. The vote will be tomorrow. That's the way things are slated to take place. And uh, it's interesting because even though he said he wouldn't resign, he also said that he fully believes that he will be kicked out of Congress tomorrow. So I don't know. Why wouldn't you spare yourself the embarrassment of actually being expelled? But again, there we go, thinking and thinking like regular people. And I don't think George Santos thinks about things the way the rest of us do. A real quick summary of um, what's going on with Gaza right now. Um, Antony Blinken is giving a press conference. Um, So far, the truce, the, the temporary truce is still in effect. John Kirby, the other um, spokesperson for President Biden, said that they're hoping that they can continue to keep this trickle of hostages being released going and that they can continue to keep the truce going. Antony Blinken today acknowledging that, but also acknowledging that it's a real tough situation. You know, he said, yeah, um, Israel is absolutely right. I mean, Hamas hides behind civilians, their, their facilities, their people, they hide behind civilians. But he also said, you know, the military of Israel is one of the best, best outfitted, best trained militaries in the world. So he sort of said, yeah, it's really hard to try to go after Hamas when they're hiding behind civilians. But kind of like, you know, Israel, if anybody can do it, it's you. And that we certainly expect he I, it, this wasn't the, his exact wording, but the gist of it was he he held Israel to a standard where, yeah, they can go after Hamas, but the hope is that those will be very surgical strikes, minimizing or eliminating civilian casualties. He also said, you know, Hamas has a role to play here, too. Hamas could immediately release all the hostages. Hamas could lay down their weapons. You know, Hamas could bring this conflict to an end, you know, in the next 24 hours if they so chose to do so. Everybody has a role to play. And um, right now, the hope is just another 24 hours of a of a truce. Of a withholding of direct military action. And if more hostages 
can be released. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, there's a lot going on in the Judiciary Committee today. Oh, oh, yes. You know, you thought, I thought for a while it was just the Republicans in Congress who were crazy and badly behaved and attention sluts. But um, it appears now that Republicans in the Senate have decided that if being outrageous is what gets your name out there, for instance, there was that Senator Mullen who was interviewing the union leader and told him to stand up and get to the middle of the room so they could fight it out like men. Um, and in the Judiciary Committee today, a lot more Republican bad behavior. I'm going to talk about that with you when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. Lots going on today. As I said, uh, Congress people debating whether or not uh, to expel George Santos, that vote to possibly make him only the sixth congressperson in our history to be expelled, kicked to the curb, ousted during his term. Uh, Santos got up a few minutes ago and talked about the ethics report that's being used against against him. He described it as sloppy. It was a sloppy report. Ugh, whatever. And there's been a lot going on in the Judiciary Committee as well. I'm beginning to think that the sense of decorum. Remember I told you a long time ago in his book about, I think it was called Giant of the Senate when Al Franken was still a senator. He said that shortly after he joined the Senate, he was in some committee hearing and somebody was testifying and they said something and Al Franken rolled his eyes, didn't say anything, didn't make any gestures, just rolled his eyes. And when the committee hearing ended, he said Mitch McConnell took him aside and said, look, this is not a comedy show. This is the Senate and we behave with decorum. And you don't roll your eyes in reaction to somebody's testimony. And Al Franken said, you know, thought about it, decided he was right. And Al Franken reined his uh, behavior in after that. <clears throat> I wonder if Mitch McConnell is uh, taking the various Republican senators aside who are behaving badly and saying to them, this is the Senate. We don't behave like the clown car show that's in Congress we hold ourselves to a different standard. I wonder if Mitch McConnell is having those conversations. What do you think? This, um, there's a couple things going on in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, we're going to talk about the move to subpoena Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow in just a couple of minutes. But first, there are a number of nominees um, that apparently in the... Um, vein of Tommy Tuberville, Republicans have decided to to kind of do a, their own filibuster um, as nominees, as as our senator, head of the Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, was trying to bring nominees uh, through the process. And um, Republicans thought that they could derail the process by simply demanding more time to comment Something that, thank God, Dick Durbin shut down. But to get a real feel for what it's like in the Judiciary Committee right now, the kind of chaos and bad behavior, Heartland Signal 
our Heartland Signal folks put together a compilation of um, exchanges that Republicans on the Judiciary Committee had with Dick Durbin over the idea of taking some of these votes. And when you hear it all put together, it it really paints a vivid picture. Listen to this. Before moving to the subpoena authorization, we consider the nominees. First is Judge Mustafa Kashubai, nominated to the U.S. District Court for the District of Oregon. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Chairman, are we going to have an opportunity to speak on the nominees? Yes, we're going to. Oh, I'm sorry. We already had done that uh, at great length. Well, I think um, this deserves some commentary, um, given the nature of the nominee, and uh, I'd like to ask to speak on the nomination. Senator, we've debated these two nominees twice. Mr. Chairman, I would also like to speak on the nomination. I, I understand what you'd like to do, but I'm saying that in fairness, we have debated these nominees twice, and I ask the clerk to call the roll. On Mr. Chairman, Mr. you're Chairman, denying us an all opportunity right. to Mr. speak Come on, on a nominee. I mean, third time. No. Okay, do this. So Just we don't do have it. a right to speak under the rules? Under the third, uh, the third time, I'd say no. So you're just going to make it up? So you, yeah. I'd like There's going to be a lot to, of consequences like coming to here. Too, Mr. You're going to have a lot of consequences coming if you go down this road. You better I've believe cautioned it. You, I've cautioned a lot of you. The clerk will call the rule. Listen to me. I've cautioned a lot of you. Mr. Chairman, don't we get the opportunity to speak? We're in a roll call. So you're even, telling even us to shut up? Even though multiple you members have asked to speak? You want us to shut up? I'm waiting to be heard on the nominee. I've requested several times to be heard on the nominee. I'm not coming back. So now I guess Senator Durbin's not going to allow women to speak either. I thought that was sacrosanct in your party. Nominee. Mr. Chairman, you just destroyed yeah. one of the most important committees in the United States Senate. Dick Durbin showing an abundance of patience as Republicans on the committee do everything in their power to deflect and delay voting on some nominations that could also possibly be because they didn't want to get to the second uh, item on the agenda, which was voting on whether or not to issue a subpoena to Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow. Of course, those two want um, Judiciary Committee Dick Durbin wants to talk to them about their involvement in ethics controversies that have to do with the Supreme Court. That's part of why the Republicans were trying to add comment to the um, judicial nominees rather than voting on them, to just create chaos and delay the process of holding two very influential behind-the-scenes people to account and to talk about how they have supported financially some of our Supreme Court justices. Dick Durbin, um, for a while, well, he asked John Roberts to come testify. John Roberts said thanks, but no thanks. And Dick Durbin got some grief when uh, he declined to subpoena John Roberts. But uh, Dick Durbin has no such qualms about going after the people involved in a civilian capacity with ethical lapses 
of our Supreme Court. So today was the day they were going to take on that vote about subpoenas. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse was on the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell last night, and he talked about the Judiciary Committee voting today on subpoenaing Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. Listen to this. What can we expect tomorrow in the committee? Fireworks. The um, Republicans are overreacting spectacularly. It's a little bit like, you know, the detective comes in and there's a dead body on the floor and everybody is screaming, whatever you do, do not look in the cookie jar. You will ruin us all if you look in the cookie jar. We'll be furious with you and you may not at all costs look in the cookie jar. What's a detective going to do? You're obviously going to look in the cookie jar. Uh, they've filed 177, 177 amendments, Lawrence, which gives you an idea of how sincere and serious each one of them is. Um, just so we're going to it's going to be a long process of just processing as quickly as we can these uh, relatively nonsense, bad faith, in my view, amendments. And then we'll hear the usual arguments. We've got no business doing this, despite the fact that Congress passed the disclosure law we're looking into. And it's enforced by the Judicial Conference, which is a body that Congress created. So they seem to persist in this argument that Congress can't do oversight into bodies that Congress created and how they enforce laws Congress passed. I mean, that's a sign of desperation to me. And then they uh, keep saying it's going to destroy the court if we continue this. We're, we're out to destroy the court, but we're not going to do any damage to the court at all unless the information that we find is really damaging. So when they're saying they're going to destroy the court, that's like this information is really bad and we don't want to let you we don't want to let the public know about it. And that's not, you know, that's not a deterrent to people who are trying to take a sincere look into what has gone wrong at the Supreme Court. Ahead of the vote, Republicans on the Judiciary Committee walked out. The Senate Judiciary Committee then voted 11 to 0 to authorize subpoenas for Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. That's going to be something that I hope to God they televise those hearings. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm WCPT 820. I've wanted to get uh, Michael Hawthorne back to join us to talk to a lot of the developments I've been reading about in climate. He's the environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. But we had to cancel our planned get together because of an important announcement that was coming through from the Environmental Protection Agency. So I do have Michael Hawthorne here, but we're throwing out our old agenda and we are going to start with actual breaking news today. Michael, welcome back. Hey, great to be with you, Joan. Sorry about yesterday, but, uh, you know, when, when the news happens, uh, you got to you right. got to spring into action. So of oh, this, um, this is uh, the EPA making a ruling about lead water pipes, something that I have been talking about ad nauseum on this show for years about Chicago's seeming lack of ability to get lead water pipes replaced. So what is the EPA now saying and doing? Well, the, it's a proposed rule, so there's going to be time for public comment once it's published in the Federal Register, which is the way 
regulations or changes in regulations work. It's, uh, you know, kind of boring and esoteric, but that's, you know, the way it works. And probably sometime next year, uh, early next year, the administration will make these changes to a 1991 regulation called the lead and copper rule. They'll make those official. And the real important thing here is the Biden EPA, the Biden administration, for following up on one of the president's uh, pledges during his 2020 campaign, is going to require every utility in the country to replace every one of these lead service lines connecting homes to water mains uh, within a decade, with some notable exceptions, Chicago being one of them. So is Chicago going to be given a longer timeline or are you saying Chicago is going to be exempted from this altogether? Oh, I don't definitely not exempted from it. It's going to be, you know, we have, as we've talked about before in this city, because of of, of machinations many, many years ago by um, members of city council and uh, the very influential plumbers union, uh, the Chicago Plumbing Code required the use of lead in, in these service lines connecting homes to, to water mains until Congress banned the practice in 1986. And so we have more of these pipes called service lines than any other city in the country, 400,000. And the city is very, very slow just now beginning to replace some of them. They're on track roughly for about 4,500 this year, according to the rules that the Biden administration is proposing, they want 10 percent a year of these lines taken out in every utility. So roughly, you know, 8000 to 10000. That means that the Chicago Department of Water Management is really going to get up, have to get off the dime and start doing the job and start doing it a lot quicker than they've been doing so far. And that was one of the things that puzzled me. This is this is not something a problem that we are just suddenly discovering we've known about this problem for a long time you know lori lightfoot made all kinds of promises about how her administration was going to really move on this and then they didn't and they were moving glacially and people kept saying why and they were like well you know we can't find contractors who know how to do the work and we're studying different techniques to find the best way to do it. It was like every time they were asked the question, they had a different answer. And I never could figure out what the problem was. I mean, this seems like, for, especially for a politician, this seems like a no-brainer. Well, yes, I agree. And you, you said answer. I would say excuse, frankly. Yeah. I've been covering this for more than a decade. And you go back into the archives, it, it, it goes back to Harold Washington. I mean, Harold Washington, before Congress took action, was trying to ban this practice, get rid, get it out of the, the plumbing code. And, and he had a big battle on his hands with the, with the plumbers. Union. Um, and, and eventually Congress stepped in and it didn't matter. But we have so many homes, you know, single family homes that were built before 1987, which is when the law took effect or the changes took effect. And and then also two flats. And we've got a lot of those in Chicago and and um, the city. I wrote back in 2016 how the city had eliminated any warnings about lead from from brochures or whatnot that it would uh, distribute to residents when the water department was doing work on their street. That's just crazy. 
right? And so they've they've known this is a problem, but they've denied it for a long time. And because of this federal rule that the Biden administration is trying to change, because of the really just Byzantine way of testing and the type of testing that's been done, Chicago has been able to get away with testing only 50 homes every three years. And the way that the testing has been done and the houses that the water department has picked has essentially made it look like there's no problem. So I also wrote back in 2016 that they were using water department employees and retirees on the Southwest side and the Northwest side and everything was coming back clean. But then after the Flint crisis brought this back to national attention, the, the, the water department under pressure from, from, uh, you know, environmental groups, lawyers, there was a lawsuit filed against the city. They began offering these free testing kits, and a lot of people took them up on it. Mm-hmm. And those same neighborhoods, you know, Morgan Park or Oriole Park, you know, where a lot of city employees live, they found crazy high levels of lead in those tests. So very different than what the official regulatory testing had shown and had cleared and had cleared uh, Chicago of any wrongdoing. And, and, and what, what really is just infuriating is to see the city continue to say that our water is perfectly safe to drink. They usually use the term meets all federal and state standards, which technically is true, but it is meaningless because they know that these lead pipes, when disturbed, or when water hasn't been used in a while, there's a whole bunch of variables that, that can affect whether or not lead leaches out of these pipes and gets into our drinking water. And, and as Administrator Regan, the EPA administrator, said yesterday, you know, nobody should have to worry about turning on a tap and worrying that they're going to be ingesting a brain-damaging metal that, that you know, can destroy the, the brains of children and cause all kinds of other health problems later in life. Um, the fact that it's taken this long to get to this point is a reflection of, to me, the, the lack of political will to deal with something that's been largely hidden. You know, these pipes are underground. And lead is, as a, as a pediatrician from Flint said yesterday on a call with journalists, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you get a big slug of that in the morning because the water's been stagnating in your lead service line overnight. And that can cause real problems um, for children, especially. Uh, you know, infants get a lot of their, you know, uh, formulas made with water can get a, a huge slug of lead because they are so dependent based on their, you know, the ratio of their body weight to what kind of, you know, the amount of water they're ingesting. Um it can be a big problem. And I think, you know, efforts have been largely successful, but still problematic to deal with lead-based paint and the dust of lead-based paint. So lead poisoning rates, even as um, even as science has said that lead is more dangerous, actually there's no safe level of exposure to lead. But as the regulations for lead paint dust have gotten tighter, the number of kids considered to be lead poisoned has decrease significantly, a huge public health uh, improvement. Now, it's still a big problem here in the city of Chicago because we have so many older homes 
that are in various states of disrepair and kids, you know, playing on the ground, put their you know hands in their mouths and they get this lead dust in and that can cause a lot of problems, especially as I've written before about in subsidized housing. But but until very recently, this whole issue with the lead pipes, even though there was research in Chicago that the water department participated in that showed how lead can leach out of these service lines, the city denied that it was having a problem. And as you pointed out, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot at least acknowledged there was a problem. She said there was going to be something done, but, well, you know, woefully behind is, mm-hmm. is a really big understatement. And also there was a, a question about, you know, even if the city, if even if it's going to take years to clear all these lines, that um, making water filters available to homes. And correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but I think it was Detroit. In the city of Chicago, if you think you have lead in your water and you want to filter, you have to fill out an application and you have to be processed and you have to wait. But in, in Detroit, when they were doing this, they also used filters as a stopgap measure, only they figured they knew, like, if you live in this zip code, you live in an underserved community. Chances are you are poor. And so certain zip codes they identified and they just showed up with water filters for those people. They didn't make them go online. They didn't make them apply. And so the corollary to this has been not only why can't we get more of these lead lines replaced? But also, why do we make it so hard to get a filtration system to tide people over until then? Well, it's almost like the bureaucratic culture at the, at the water department just doesn't want to make it happen. You know, uh, the, the, the federal government has given the city a bunch of money to deal with uh, lead service lines in low-income neighborhoods in the city. But also, as you just said, regarding the filters, the, 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 the paperwork that people have to go through to prove that they're poor is, is worse than any kind of uh, social assistance program. I, I, I've interviewed people on the south side who said it took them months to clear the hurdles that the city had put up. And so once again, uh, you have a city like Newark, New Jersey, where the state legislature stepped in and said that the water service line is the property basically of the city, no matter whether it's on your property or public property. And they took steps to go in, and in less than three years, they removed and replaced 25,000 lead service lines. That's that's big deal. That that was the that was the political will of the mayor of Newark, which doesn't have a history of being a really well run city. (laughs) And and, and Detroit also does not have a great history of being a well run city. But the mayor in Detroit and the water department in in Detroit, they're committed to be doing the same thing. They saw what happened in Flint. They don't want their city to be uh, have, you know, have another strike against it when. This is such a relatively easy fix. And, and Chicago, at least, has finally gotten around to, you know, the first time I, I, I visited uh, one of the first service lines that the water department replaced. First of all, there were 25 workers on site. It was a tiny postage stamp of a, of a bungalow on the south side. They tore up the entire front yard. The poor owners looking out the the window at their at their grass and, and their plants, mm-hmm. you know, being dug up. Well, now they've they've gone to this system where they punch a hole 
essentially between the, the, the curb and the sidewalk. And that's you know, the service line, the lead service line is down there. And they have a contraption on a, on a piece of construction equipment that threads a copper pipe in to the home. And pull, and they use basically kind of GPS, like uh, you know, computerized tracking, and then pulls the lead pipe out, and and so you know, you're not disrupting the yard. I was I was uh, at another house on the south side with uh, Mayor Johnson, Senator Durbin, Senator Duckworth, and members of the uh, US EPA staff recently, and that's the very thing that they did. And the owner was on his porch looking out at his beautiful grass you know, between the sidewalk and his house. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, a worker came out with like the extra cur- uh, uh, coil of copper pipe and, and he looks at the owner and says, we're done. And it was boom, you know, like oh. that. And, you know, so what happened in Newark, What what's happening in Detroit, what's happening in Cincinnati, what's happening in Denver is they're going down streets and boom, 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 just doing it. And they're not letting people say no. They even in, in New Jersey, if you're a renter, it, it just you didn't have to get permission from the landlord. Anybody who was living in the building could say yes. And we don't have that here in Illinois. We don't have that in Chicago. And, you know, we have a lot of rental properties on the south and west sides. Michael, so, as I recall, um, why the are they not time- going to deal with this? Yeah, well, The last time we got a new head of the water department in the city of Chicago, um, we knew all these problems existed, and also there were a lot of problems uh, with harassment that erupted that had to be dealt with. But it was supposed to be a whole new time, a whole new era. What happened to all that? Wh- where did all that energy go that was supposed to, you know, turn all this around? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I, it's, I've been scratching my head about that for years as well, Joan. And and all I can say is, since Mayor Daley was in office, one of the one of the department's biggest priorities, and it's a worthy priority, was to replace aging water mains. You know, some of them made some of them go back so far that they were made of wood. I remember former Mayor Rahm Emanuel had a piece of one of these wooden service or uh, water mains in, in his office at city hall. Um, and, and, you know, we only can take so much water a day legally from Lake Michigan. And there was a big effort to conserve water rightfully so. And as a result, you know, because of those conservation efforts as a city, as the city as a whole is using less Lake Michigan water than it ever has. And yet Lake Michigan water is being extended to more suburbs and still staying within that cap that the Supreme Court said, you know, we can only take so much water every day. Now, the problem is when the city doubled our water rates and borrowed more than $400 million from the federal government to replace these water mains, they would come onto your street, they would dig the street up, they would replace the water main and hook the water main back up to those same toxic lead pipes uh. that they once required until 1986. I mean, the streets already open. Why didn't they just take the opportunity and fix the problem altogether? And, and you know, I know some people complain, oh, you know, water is so expensive. But 
what's really interesting is that at least the last time I checked, which was not that long ago, only maybe the Phoenix area has cheaper water rates than Chicago does. So we have even after even after Mayor Emanuel doubled our water rates and then tacked on an extra surcharge to help pay for the underfunded pensions, we still on a per gallon basis don't pay as much as Flint, Michigan, don't pay as much as Detroit, don't pay as much as Newark. Um, there's room there. Uh, and, and Mayor Lightfoot talked about this. She talked about, you know, instead of having everybody pay us, you know, the same rate. You know, basically have it graduated. So if you're, you know, J.B. Pritzker in his mansion in the Gold Coast, you're going to pay more for your water than, uh, you know, a mom and her kids in Englewood. Um, but that didn't get any traction at City Hall. It's, um, well, we've got a new mayor who's made new promises. Maybe, Michael, it's the dawn of a new day. Uh, I would sure like to think that's the case. And I'm glad uh, if if even if they did give Chicago an extended timeline, at least the EPA is once again shining a light on this on this problem. And, um, you know, a new administration wants to make its mark. This would seem to be uh, a real easy way to get a lot of people thinking that you're doing a great job. Um, Before we wrap this up, I do have to talk to you about one of the things that I originally asked you to come on the radio to talk about. Uh, there was a Virgin, I think it was, was it a Virgin Atlantic plane that uh, flew across the ocean uh, without using fossil fuel? I love this headline in the Washington Post. A plane fueled by fat and sugar has crossed the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but does that mean the plane was running on ice cream sundaes? <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of the, it's a, it's the version of, uh, you know, running a car on, on vegetable oil, which uh, you can be easily done and, and is and became such a popular thing that places like Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, padlock their 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 chicken grease uh, dumpsters because um, it's so valuable. <laughs> um, you know, the Virgin flight was uh, was, you know, it's not going to be replicated anytime soon on a, on a, on a, you know, a more widespread basis, but it did show that it can be done. And uh, there's a story in the New York times today, actually, where, uh, because the, you know, the airline industry is really focused on cutting their, their heat trapping, you know, climate changing emissions. Mm-hmm. Now the idea is using ethanol and, 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 uh, you know, requiring the use of ethanol instead of, you know, Jet fuel, essentially. And, you know, the the story does point out, though, that that would require farmers to grow a lot more corn. And there's a lot of other environmental drawbacks of growing corn, fertilizer, runoff, all this other kind of stuff. Um, and, and also, it would require a lot of water. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot of skepticism out there, but I can see why the ethanol industry would want to maybe go down this route because they're already nervous. You know, in the in the 2000s, the ethanol industry, based on a lot of federal incentives, they built out a lot, you know, in Iowa, and Nebraska, and the Dakotas, even in Illinois. And now, you know, with the electrification of, of vehicles, you know, the, the, a lot of states now are saying they're going to stop you know, the uh, they're going to stop allowing gas powered vehicles or fossil fuel 
Powered vehicles uh, by within the next decade, and so the ethanol industry. Hey, we need new markets, and so hey, mm-hmm. why not we make ethanol for airplanes? Um, you know, I think I think the jury is still out on that one, but it does show that that the concerns about climate change and the numbers. You know, uh, UN says that we're probably on track for the hottest year ever. And, uh, you know, by 2030 right now, the U.S. is on track to drill for more oil than it has in the country's history. Russia and China are expected to be doing the same thing. And so in a lot of ways, we're going backwards Mm. um, or making the problem worse. But the good news is, is there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there and uh, and smart thinkers that are trying to figure out how to cut emissions as fast as possible so we can avoid the worst consequences of climate change. One thing about this flight that confused me, this uh, virgin flight that went over the Atlantic Ocean without using fossil fuels, I mean, clearly, whatever they did seemed to work, but they're describing it as a one-time stunt. Oh, yeah, well, we did this, but, you know, we're not going to do it again anytime soon. Um, So was it just for PR value or did oh, yeah. they really, I mean, you know, Richard, were they really looking at, you know, uh, evaluating, you know, like how much thrust they got and now they have to go back to the drawing board? I, I was confused by that because they yeah, did probably it, all the above. Saying, oh, we can't do it again. Yeah, I, my understanding, I mean, Sir Richard Branson, who owns Virgin Airlines, he, you know, he's a he's a flamboyant uh, gentleman who, you know, is is fond of big sweeping PR, um, you know, stunts or whatnot. Um, I think. The last part of what you said there is, you know, evaluating how it worked. I think, you know, how would that handle? How would how would a plane, a traditionally you know manufactured plane, hold up uh, maintenance wise uh, with a different type of fuel? Uh, I think those are some among the many questions that have not been answered. But again, you know, showed it is potentially possible. Um, you know, is it an engineering fix? I don't think we know yet. Well, does it make a difference if they fuel them with ice ice cream sundaes that have fudge on them versus ice cream sundaes that have caramel <laughs> sauce? Because you know, there's I think more yeah. sugar in the caramel sauce. Oh man, I, I'll take either one if I'm, you know, <laughs> ab- ab- above the fuel tanks and you know flying <laughs> in, to Europe again. I mean, of, that'd be great. In the interest of full disclosure, Michael, there have been days when I have been fueled solely by ice cream sundaes, so I can tell you it works. Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We don't have a lot of time left, but I remember seeing, oh, you know, we very briefly rose above the the two degree heat limit that everybody said would basically kill us all. But then we went back down. Um, Was that just a fluke? Or is that the no? I mean, it's it's a, it's a reflection once again of uh, you know global temperatures are, are are going up and they're going up at a very disturbingly rapid pace, and you know there's a lot of fluctuation uh, from month to month uh, based on a lot of factors, um, but the fact that we you know we're up against that uh, that limit and up against or that goal and and then uh, briefly exceeded it. It shows that we can't keep doing uh, business the way we have for so long. And, and you know, we're once again, it's like we're making the problem worse, even though the science of what it's doing to the planet and what it's eventually 
going to be doing to all of us and already is happening to a lot of people on the planet, um, you know, it's it's not a good thing. It's uh, it's a depressing thing. The good news is, once again, um, there's a lot of technology out there. There are a lot of people trying to do the right thing and move the world in a different direction, not just the U.S., Canada, you know, even China. Uh, you know, they're doing a lot of renewable energy as they're building up their, their coal fleet still. Um, and, you know, there was an agreement just recently between um, the Chinese and U.S. governments to, to try to tackle this more aggressively as the two big emitters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once again, like a lot of these things, the proof's going to be in the pudding, you know, trust but verify. And um, I, I think, you know, we keep having these climate-driven disasters that make disasters we're already, you know, that we've already lived through even worse or make them more frequent. Um, just think about flooding in the Midwest, for example. Yeah. I mean, we've flooded, you know, time to time uh, for many years the fear is that it's, you know, the cycle of drought, the cycle of of, of flooding um, becomes so not intermittent, but so frequent that, you know, we can't keep up with dealing with the impacts. You know, FEMA is still paying out um, and, and dealing with people in the western suburbs and the west part of the city for flooding in September. I've got to get that, to news, yeah, it's, 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 wanna, it's an issue. Obviously, we have a lot to talk about. So um, barring any other um, breaking news, we need to get you back here to go over a lot of this stuff. Please, I, I hope you will consider that. You bet. Anytime, Joe. Thanks. Michael Hawthorne, environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. We are going to take a break for news, and then we are going to begin our live Zoom diversity, equity, and inclusion panel right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Ian. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. I am welcoming all of you <laughs> panelists to our diversity, equity, and inclusion panel. Uh, for those of you who are home and listening on your computer, uh, we are on Zoom. You can join us and see our incredibly well-made-up and quaffed lovely faces. Dan Allen looking really good today. Um, I'd like to start by welcoming you, the audience. Uh, it's going to be an interesting and informative session here. Also would like to uh, thank our panelists and introduce them, Amber Holst-Wilson, uh, Senior Director Operations for Flourish Research. Uh, Dan Allen, as I pointed out, looking lovely today, Executive Director for the Construction Industry Service Corps, also known as Cisco. Trent Spoolstra, welcome, Trent. Nice to have you here. Associate Regional Director of uh, the uh, Jewish Community and Young Leadership Engagement uh, for the Anti-Defamation League. And uh, Diana Alfaro, uh, Office of Minority Economic Empowerment, Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. Thank you, mm. thank you, thank you for those of you who are uh, here today to talk about what an important issue this is. It is 
coming under fire like it hasn't in a long time. So these discussions are really, really going to be important. And uh, last but not least, I would like to introduce my co-moderator. You hear her here every morning. She is also uh, syndicated. Santita Jackson is here uh, to uh, kick things off for us, Santita. And I am here with you, Joan. No, we worked this out technically, but I'm so glad to be with you, beautiful one. Oh, my gosh. And thank you, Matt. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, panel, for being with us. And, Joan, thank you for being a guiding light for all of us in media for so long. And, uh, and you just keep on going. So much passion, so much fire. Everyone, please, from 2 to 5 every day, tune into Joan's show. It is. It just doesn't get me better than the Joan Esposito Show, and then Patty Vasquez from 5 to 7, and everybody in between. You know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, Joan, has been under fire. Indeed, after the SCOTUS decision, striking down essentially gunning uh, affirmative action, you saw major firings of leading figures in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And so the question is, what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, what is the difference between equity and equality? Right. I think we have a lot of questions. I think first, though, uh, Joan, following your lead, we need to sing from the same sheet of music and find out exactly what uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, um, just generally speaking. And, you know, did you thank our sponsors? Because, you know, I was trying to – I was – I was just moving everything along, but let me just do it again, just in the absence of that. Amber Holst-Wilson, Senior Director, Operations Flourish Research. We thank you for that. Dr. David Sanders, Malcolm X College. Yes, yes, yes. And the Executive Service Corps Board of Directors and Dan Allen from Cisco. We love them so much, Joan. They help to train so many people. But, you know, let me just start here, Joan, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. First of all, what is it? And why does it have people? Why is it so controversial in some spaces, but in other spaces, they're saying America needs to join the world? What does it mean? And, you know, Joan, I would have to say, let me just put myself out there. In the world of medical research, it's really, really special because um, it's special to me because I had something called the biliopancreatic bypass surgery 19 years ago. Um, it's a weight loss surgery, lost about 200 plus pounds, and I'm really excited about it. And most people are offered every other surgery. This is like the platinum standard, but you know what, Joan? I found out when I was in the process of getting the surgery that it's the best surgery for black and brown and indigenous people, and yet we don't know anything about it. So you see how we can be excluded from these spaces without the information. So let's start with diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly when it comes to research, because, you know, people of color feel some kind of way about being part of studies, and I'm actually part of one for the rest of my life. So, you know, Ms. Amber, why don't we start with you? I am happy to. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, and, and you speak, you speak our language. You know, it's about knowing what resources are out there that you may benefit from. So, um, at Great Lakes Clinical Trials, we're a community-based research site with three locations in the greater Chicago area and part of Flourish Research, which is a nationwide network of also community-based research sites. 
what works at some of our sister sites does not work in the Chicago market. We are unique. We are diverse. Um, I'm so proud that our main clinic is located in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago. We are huge in terms of equity, um, inclusion, a sense of belonging, not only among our staff and workplace, but the communities that we serve. So particularly when you're dealing with medical research and getting new therapies and treatments to the market for approval. You know, it becomes so important to understand the science, why we're looking at it in certain patient populations. The beauty of the work that we do, we're able to take time with our patients. We are not bound by, you know, insurance requirements and time limits. And there's no gain for us. We believe in the science, you know? I mean, yes, we work with pharmaceutical companies and research organizations, but at the end of the day, we want clean data so we can enable people of all genders, age, religions, ethnicities, um, backgrounds, gender identities to have access to something that ultimately they will benefit from. And once approved, will enable individuals to live happier, healthier, longer lives. So how do you create awareness about that? Uh, half of what we do is getting entrenched in various communities and building meaningful relationships to go into senior centers, to go into, we have our blue ribbon certification to do educational programming at Chicago Housing Authority buildings. And what we offer is awareness. Here's what research is looking at and why. Here's what a clinical trial is. What's the difference between phase one to phase four? Some of the research studies we do are diagnostic, right? It's not even a medication-based thing. And also letting individuals know, and this is where I think historically research has failed, and we've come a long way since the 1970s, just to put that out there, that we are heavily regulated as we should be, and we are fully transparent about that. And no trial will ever move forward if the risks do not outweigh um, outweigh the benefits. It has to be benefit-driven. And patient safety is, first and foremost, the most important thing. And one of the things I think we find most meaningful is people don't, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, particularly half the work we do is in memory loss research. So memory loss, meaning mild cognitive impairment. So the dementia umbrella, if you will. Most individuals don't know that at their annual wellness visit, they can request to get a memory assessment. Most people don't even have a baseline assessment. So you can request that. It is complimentary. They are required to offer it to you. So should you have loved ones or friends mention, they've kind of noticed a change then like your recollection and things like that. At least you have a baseline number to point to so you know if things are progressing. And it may be reversible. It could be a vitamin deficiency. It could be a disease progression. These are the things sure. that... Just to I get mm -hmm. Are you talking about when you go for like, say, your yearly checkup? Are you talking about your regular medical mm -hmm. professional, yes. not, not going to a testing facility? No, you can ask your, now we always open our doors. Um, and we do it quarterly. We open on weekends just to have people make their own appointment. Nothing is exclusionary. We just do memory assessments with you. Um, and it's it's a wonderful experience, you know. What good are we if we can't benefit the community in some way? Because an educated community is ultimately going to be a healthier community. What's interesting, well, you in know, Amber. 
Yes. If I may, because you mentioned going to the CHA, the housing project, where, you know, people who are economically depressed live, even though a lot of people are living yes. in an economic <laughs> depression wherever we are. Uh, what about insurance? Because it appears that you removed that, you know, as, as a hurdle. And how do we let people know about that? And how we, that just, how does that function? How do you let people know that you don't need to have insurance to participate in this and to benefit from this? That's wonderful. Thank you for that. Yes, everything we do, we don't take Medicare, we don't take insurance, any of that. What we do is we offer as a clinic in general, um, something we're governed by something called an um, institutional review board. So any type of document that would ever be facing a patient to explain something that may um, happen to them, whether it's a memory assessment, whether it's we're going to take your height and weight or vitals, maybe do a finger stick to test your, you know, cholesterol and A1C. Um, we review here are the things that could happen and we get consent, written consent from the participant that clearly states you will not be charged for anything. Uh, so they have it in writing and we do it with ample time to make sure they can ask any of the questions before we proceed with any type of visit procedure. And everything that we do is completely free of charge. So it may be coming in just to, I'd like to know what my vitals are and have some labs. Can you check my cholesterol? We will do that as a free service to the community. At the same time, should that come back to show, you know what, you're pre-diabetic or, you know, your height and weight may qualify you, case in point, for uh, a weight loss trial. We're doing a lot of research now um, to get in front of the obesity pandemic, which frankly is our next is a pandemic um you all know they're hawking like we go v and these like type 2 diabetes drugs for thousands of dollars that nobody can afford um but we're putting the science behind that to make sure that individuals will benefit from being in these in these trials and i think another thing that's really important is research in general in the 1900s, when they first started doing research, it was all done in white men, right? Um, guess what? Those people don't have, those individuals don't necessarily have the same risk factors as others of different, you know, racial, ethnic groups, um, different metabolisms based on how individuals' diets are. All of these things contribute to making sure we have to test therapies in the patient populations it was intended to. You have to have diverse data so we can identify, do we need to change dose modifications if other conditions are present? How do we not have the eligibility criteria to be in clinical trials or to be a part of research as stringent, right? Because you want to make it as accessible to all as possible which ultimately is going to benefit people in the longer run, and it creates safer, effective therapies. Hmm. Amber, how do you go about uh, recruiting for your various studies to make sure that you have a balanced group? I mean, I, I oftentimes read about um, heart disease and heart attack. And I read over and over again how women have completely different heart attack symptoms and still sometimes... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, somebody will call an EMT and the EMT won't acknowledge, won't put them on monitoring, doesn't realize what's going on. So we've known about this for years and we still can't seem to get the word out. Right. Um, so how do you, how can you, with the studies you do and the audience you bring in for that, make some headway there? 
Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great topic to bring up because again, it's our job to help people advocate for themselves, right? And point them to resources so they can ask and make informed decisions that are ultimately going to benefit them. So with the various research that we do, um, any messaging that goes out in the community has to be reviewed by the institutional review board because the last thing you want to do is be misleading in anything, right? It's about establishing trustful and meaningful relationships and doing it consistently. It's not like we get awarded like a new research study, say in, you know, cardiometabolic or Alzheimer's disease. Oh, let's just go pop into a senior center and like try to get people to join our clinical trial. No, 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 no. We're at every church function we can go to that they want to have an educational session. And then maybe we can check people's vitals or do ECGs off site for them or something along those lines. Uh, we want to educate about here's what research is looking. Here's the research that we're doing right now. Here's what it's looking at and why. And then at the end of it, we always point to here's other research centers in the area that you may benefit from. If not, here's community resources that are available to you. We want to point individuals to be set up to be successful and get as much knowledge and care as they are able and that they want to. So I think that we do social media marketing, we do the educational talks, we legit host bingo nights and things like that just to kind of establish relationships like within communities. And we even go so far as we give feedback at the site level. We're the ones in the trenches, right, that are following a protocol that was designed. The FDA still doesn't have final guidance on enhancing the diversity of clinical trial populations. Um, they have a draft that came out with guidance around this that kind of addresses the importance of testing these therapies and the populations it's intended for. However, that's not going to be finalized for the end of the year. So what can we do? As sites, we have a voice to advocate and ask the questions up front. Say we know this research study, it's a vaccine trial, right, for RSV, you know, which can affect um, seniors, not just infants. Well, they have to go and do an electronic diary by downloading an app on their smartphone. Okay, what if we're in a community where people don't have reliable Wi-Fi? They don't want to fuss about data usage. We ask the sponsor, meaning the pharmaceutical company, you have to provide us with provision devices that we can give these individuals so they can do their e-diary. And we need to be in the forefront to give that voice. We work to get grant money for rideshare services. I do not want someone hopping on like the, you know, King Drive bus to get to the red line to be able to take that for an hour to get up to my clinic. We will offer complimentary lift transportation to and from each of their appointments. And we also push back on sponsors to see what can we do via telehealth? And if someone's not as mobile, could we partner with a home healthcare agency? So we kind of decentralize the traditional clinical trial model. So it's more conducive to the, the patients that we serve. And if we don't advocate for what's the best way to get them the potential care that they could benefit from, we have to ask those questions. Worst case, they say no, but I also think it never hurts to ask and they need to hear that feedback to actually move the industry forward. Well, you know, Amber, I think we have to find other ways, Joan and, and, and Dan and Trent to get the word out because you're doing great work with too few people 
know about it like my surgery. You know, it's, it's there. It exists. It, it's very helpful. But, you know, I think you've got to particularly understand every, every community, these, underso- these underserved communities that you want to reach. You know, whatever community you are in, as Americans, the, the day where you get everybody is on Sunday or on worship day on Saturday. You know, how do we begin to engage these different communities, our sororities, fraternities, you know, uh, whatever group that you're in so that they can know that they have access to this, particularly when you're looking at uh, ethnic-specific illnesses. You know, when I uh, went uh, underwent my health challenges a few years ago, uh, the, my doctors were also uh, persons who wanted to know my racial background. Said, we need to know that so that we can help you because one of your issues might be related to one of your, one of your forebears who was not African, you know, who was Irish or something like that. And so how, I mean, how, how can we begin to really expand the dialogue so that people know that you exist in what it is that you do, like getting over to Chicago State, getting over to Kennedy King, not just to Paul and Loyola and, and Northwestern, right? Exactly. I hundred you speak my I love this. Um okay. and also I'm a huge advocate not only for creating awareness, it's through the community partners, right? What established community partners do we have? What benefit can we bring to them that may complement a service they already exist? And we become meaningful partners with them. And you have a consistent presence and build a relationship with that community. Um, I really get frustrated in general. People are like, well, you should target this patient population. No, 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 no. We don't do that. Um, that, that language is actually, I think, borderline offensive. And, you know, another thing is if we can open up a pop-up, say we have a, say we have a clinical trial that's like a device testing or something like that. And if we have the ability to expand, like if someone has an existing clinic or practice, could we perform some of the visits there? Can we bring it to the communities? We actually have a de novo site as part of Flourish Research that we just opened in Bowie, um, Maryland, which is outside Baltimore. And there's two black female cardiologists who are the principal investigators. This is like groundbreaking in the research industry. And the commitment is also you hire from the community. Do you know how many CNAs went to really amazing community colleges that have these amazing, incredible phlebotomy skills, infusion skills, you know, vitals training? You grow from the community. DEI is not about an access, an opportunity. is not like a plant you put on a desk or you frame your mission statement and put it on a wall. It is something that you water and you nurture and you continue to grow. And that goes for our employees, too, not just our patients. But you know what, Trent, I think that you can you can jump in here because this is something I think that our Jewish brothers and sisters have been so expert at diversity, equity and inclusion and pulling people into research um, through your community centers and just through your outreach in general, uh, because we're from groups that I mean, all groups have specific issues like Tay-Sachs disease and things like that, Trent. Absolutely. Yeah, no, Cynthia, thank you for that. And I, I think from a. Uh... Uh, certainly from a Jewish perspective, right? I, understanding like things from, from the DEI perspective, we talk about certain um, illnesses that, that show up with, with certain ethnic groups, same thing for the Jewish community as well too. And so it's, um, 
it's Amber, I really appreciated hearing, learning from, from the medical standpoint, because from uh, the Anti-Defamation League's perspective, a lot of the DEI work that we do is in education. It's in K through 12 schools and universities. And so um, that's been working that my job that I work, that's been my main focus. And, you know, learning about, no, like it needs to be in every field, including the, med- the medical field. So it was very enlightening to hear about the work that you all do. But do you think it's important, Trent, um, that we do even more outreach? Because I think that too many of us, there's so, I mean, medical Amber and, and Dan, the, the medical community, uh, Deanna, it, everything flips so quickly. And we just, and too few of us have access to too much information that's out there. What can, what in, I mean, in your estimation can we do to let people know about what Amber and others are doing? Absolutely. I think part of it is, is working to, uh, the networks that we all have, right? I mean, at ADL, we're, uh, we're actually an international, uh, nonprofit organization. We have offices all across the United States, but, uh, even globally as well, too. So I think it's, it's looking and, and spreading the word and, and, between partnerships that we have with houses of worship, between organizations, things like that, um, inviting people. And, and, you know, one of the things that we do at ADL, we have a lot of webinars. We have a lot of educational materials for our lay leaders, for folks who are signed up for our email alerts. I mean, Amber, I think it'd be a great, great time to have you come on at some point for an ADL webinar to talk about from this perspective, right? Because, I mean, we're ADL's focused on fighting hate, right? But uh, understanding that DEI spreads, it's not just about hate. It, it, like I said earlier, talks about really the wide focus of all fields, including the medical field, and seeing things from a different perspective. Well, Trent, from both of our communities, you know, having gone through the Holocaust more than once and having had one ourselves here, we come from communities that can be a little skittish, Yes. About research, you know, yes. interestingly. Uh, Deanna Alfaro, help us with this. I mean, what can we do just in terms of policy and, you know, just to let people know all of the information that is out here? I mean, I'm stunned all the time by all that we don't know. And, you know, it's like our lives could be made so much easier. Yeah, I feel like this is bringing me back because in a previous life, I served in an IRB institutional review board. And so I'm quite familiar on, on that end. Uh, but it goes back when you're working with ethnic communities is building that trust, what Amber was saying about investing in the community, building those relationships, finding those leaders in the community that people trust. Because unfortunately, in years past, research was never friendly to ethnic communities, right? They violated, they, they did research with without informed consent. They were doing research on birth control and other things without getting consent and and really impacted our communities where they don't trust research. It's the same thing with government. They don't trust government. And so you have to really invest the time and root yourself in the community to build those relationships, to build that camaraderie with them. They're like, this is working for both of us. Like, I'm trying to get research. We're trying to understand the community. This is how we'll benefit the community and really understand that it's going to take time and it's going to take a longer amount of time than working with a community that is open to it. Yeah. You know, and it's going to take a lot of us getting in, getting in people's faces, Joan. I mean, all the time. You need to hear it all the time. Or misrepresent them. And then suddenly you're suddenly there. You want them to trust you. I mean, it doesn't uh, you have to you have to do some work there. You have to build some bridges. Um, Panelists, we are going to take a break. I want to um, 
real quick thank our panelists for this engaging first half hour, Amber Holtz-Wilson, Senior Director, Operations Flourish Research. Dr. Uh, David Sanders is going to be joining us in a little bit. Dan Allen, Executive Director for uh, Cisco, Trent Spoolstra with the Anti-Defamation League, and Diana Alfaro, Office of Minority Economic Empowerment in the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Dan. We're going to we're going to put you on the spot to to take this That's away right. when we come back. We're going to talk about uh, diversity in the building trades when we come right back after this. Everybody, welcome. Our panelists are doing great. Santita and I, and we're going to be better. We're going to figure <laughs> our microphone issues out. But the panelists oh are nothing but but perfect. Um, and I'd like to take a minute, as Santita did earlier, to thank our sponsors, particularly Amber Holst Wilson, who is Senior yeah. Director of Operations for Flourish Network. We appreciate your sponsorship. Dr. David Sanders has joined us in a tiny little box, and we love him. President of Malcolm X College and Executive Service Core Board of Directors. Thank you again for contributing to today's panel. And, of course, our uh, lovely Dan Allen, who we um, get on board for every panel we hold. We love to talk to him. He's probably getting a little tired of us, but I I hope he will. Uh, we, for, we love Dan. Uh, I know we, we love, love Dan. Dan. Even though we didn't talk to him about health, but you know, every other day, I'm just saying he might be a little sick of us. Never, absolutely (laughs) never. Are you kidding? Look at him. Actually, I was Dan. I was just trolling for compliments. Thank you. That's it. Do you mind if I, Joan? Do you mind if I jump in for a hot second? Because I didn't get get to speak with Dan in the previous segment, and one of the things that concerns me about. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in um, in the health space is the challenge that working people have, right? I mean, it's just like um, we don't think that we have access to financial planners, for example, mm-hmm. and we just don't have enough access to information about health, health options, about mm-hmm. being part, being protected in, in a health study and being part of what Amber's uh, Amber's endeavors at Flourish, and you don't need insurance, or you can be underinsured. Why don't you speak to that very quickly? Yeah, it's uh, Amber gave, gave a great overview, and so did the uh, the panelists about uh, the importance of meeting people where they're at, and uh, and even in the building trades and working people. Um, <laughs> so we have in the building trades, we have some of the best insur- health insurance there is collectively bargained for between the union contractors and the unions. And guess what? A lot of tradesmen uh, and women are a little bit better at this, but they don't want to go to the doctor. And it's been a big learning curve of trying to utilize them and educate them, you know, to get to, to the doctor. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the trades have a little bit of that, you know, tough guy mentality. We've got a high percentage of veterans and, um, and they can work through the pain, and uh, and it can cause longer terms. So it's been a, a great educational tool to meet people at, at the gang boxes with toolbox talks, uh, talk to them, make them available, 
They, they've done a great job of making a lot of the unions now have health clinics where they can go as members and their families can actually go for vaccinations and checkups. And just as Amber was talking about, avail themselves to a lot of things to, to help with their health. So again, if you don't meet people where they're at, we've also had, and I, it's a terrible subject, but we've had a high suicide rate in the construction mm. trades. And that, you know, the miscomer and the, uh, the, you know, the facade that goes with, you know, mental health issues and trying to break through that, hey, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. So we've actually have foremen and, and different business agents and the contractors who are putting together very serious programs to check in on people and to see, especially some of our younger workers, you know, if they're laid off and they're, and they're struggling to make sure that they avail themselves to that. We have actually posters and a whole program to help prevent this suicide rate, which is about second in, the, in, in of all industries. Uh, it, it, a lot of it does same with that culture. And it also, the pain of working outside, getting on some of these drugs and then having some of the addiction issues that face it. So um, having programs and meeting people where they are is huge to, uh, to turn that corner. Just had to get that in, Joan, because I think it's so important that as you, as, I mean, because I think that's what this whole thing is about today. It's about meeting people where they are so we can bring them in and get more information, make their lives better. And, and Dan, I also want you to talk a little bit about, you talked about working with uh, people who are currently involved in the trades, uh, but what do you do when it comes to apprenticeship training, uh, job training, and, and how do you do any DEI education or do you do any DEI education at that level? And if so, what does it look like? Um, yes, it, the, the DEI outreach now in the trades has reached a record level, and I'm never, I can't be happier. Um, so I, I'm charged, um, we have a coordinator, Jamala Muhammad, who you've had on, a, a, an unbelievable dynamic woman that is actually out right now recruiting people in the trades. We meet them where they're at. We go to churches. We go to veterans groups. We go to prisons. We go to all kinds of nonprofit areas. We run big. We've been at Malcolm X College with numerous big trade career fairs where we don't just bring one trade. We bring multiple trades. And who do we bring? Uh, not paid actors or actresses. We bring, you know, women, journey women that are in all different trades. We represent 22 different trades over 140,000 skilled trade men and women. So we're able to bring apprentices of color, uh, apprentices of women apprentices, journeymen, and talk to other young people and tell them, this is a career that you can have. We break down the barriers that that was that Amber was touched on. We break, there's so many barriers in economically challenged areas that, you know, you can't take for granted that, you know, we can help with, you know, classes that can help brush up on the for the entrance test for reading and math skills we actually have a barrier reduction fund so paying for the 50 dollar entry fee oh that, that's not a big deal that's a big deal when you're struggling and then we ask we tell somebody or at least i do i'll say apply to multiple trades that can be a couple hundred dollars and when they start a program if they get in there's tools we've been able to combine with our partners and have given over a hundred thousand dollars of tools, gas cards, Uber cards to help people that are normally would not have been able to succeed without a little bit of hand helping. And it's such a rewarding thing to see 
them turn into second, third, fourth year apprentices, and then journeymen or journeying women. And of course, that help keeps building on itself to success. But you know, Dan and Joan, when you start looking at diversity, it's not just race, right? I mean, you've got gender, you've got age, you've got physical abilities. How do you reach out to, I mean, beyond, you know, we, the black, white, brown, yellow, red, that's important, but people have, bring a lot from their various life experiences. Absolutely. The LGBTQ community, the trans, I mean, just everybody yeah. has something to bring to the table. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and I'm, a, I am actually shocked and proud of the building trades 360 on these issues. Um, because I've been in them a long time and I, and I'm embarrassed to say, if you were talking to me, you know, 40 years ago, I couldn't tell you this news. I, I, and, and I've seen it on a progression upward. Doesn't mean that we're never spiking this football. We're not in the end zone by any means, but look out of our way because we're going this way. And if you want to go backwards, you're, you're not going to be in this industry for long, but reaching out to the different generations is so important. Just like, I talked about some of the olders and the veterans and that macho thing. It, you know, we don't relate that well. Foremen and superintendents, pouring concrete under de deadlines, aren't really relating very well to some young worker up there. You know, you we are actually given classes on time for foremen in that to embrace the different chat, different strengths that younger people do that LGBTQ you know, workers bring to the table. And guess what? It's huge. The, the Women Build Nations had a big conference with thousands of women. And it was so good to see from all different trades. There was business agents, business managers. There was foremen. And guess what? At this conference, it was in Las Vegas. They had AA meetings and other meetings and mentor meetings. And when, when women put together a program, uh, some of our people have had trouble with that and are in recovery. And to see them have early morning meetings and have, you know, sponsors helping people go out through if you're going out through the evening so that they could all be included. That was so moving. And the Department of Labor, the, the, the chairman of the Department of Labor was there. He was in tears, a big husky, you know, Boston mayor, depart, former Department of Labor from Boston, said, I cannot believe the sisterhood that reached out to the brotherhood and, this, and the other sisterhood and how strong this diversity makes it. You know, diversity is just a word in a dictionary, but when you start putting it in practice, look out, you know, and it's so simple. Just put yourself in the shoes of someone else, be kind, reach out and err on the side of helping them and you'll, you'll change somebody's life. Yeah. Um, Deanna, I'd like you to, to jump in here. You know, we've been, um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the trades, um, what can somebody who works within the framework of government do to um, help this situation, to make it better? Yeah, so at our agency, the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, also known as DCO, we do have an office called Illinois Works that it has an actual um, construction pre-apprenticeship program. So it's preparing people to get into an apprenticeship program. Um, so it's creating initiatives such as that, uh, working with our Office of Employment and Training at DCO that works with our apprenticeship programs. We give a tax credit to have our apprenticeship programs. We'll help um, organizations create their own apprenticeship program, get it certified from the Department of Labor, et cetera. So I think it's important for government to be intentional 
and creating initiatives that will help the community and that the community actually wants. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How much of your of your work day or your work week would you say you spend on these kinds of issues, Deanna? Well, DEI all the time. In my office, the Office of Minority. Four seven. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so I work in the Office of Minority and Economic Empowerment, also known as OMI by our acronym O M E E. So we support minorities, women, persons persons with disability, veterans, um, but overall marginalized communities. Where we also support Arab, MENA, the Middle East, North Africa, LGBTQI plus community. Um, but we primarily work on focusing on supporting those business owners from those demographics. And so connecting them with state resources like grants, loans, funding opportunities, technical assistance, creating a business, growing their business, and making sure they have the resources to be as successful as possible. So daily, all the time, but more on the, on the business side, um, not so much on the apprenticeship side, a little bit in supporting the other offices at our agency. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, you know I, I think, yes. Yes, Dan, please. A little bit on, on the important role that government plays, you know, DCEO is vital. And then other governments, other, other cities, municipalities, when they're building a project, insisting on a, a, a minority participation, WB and MBE, you know, participation on, on their projects. And most of the governments are jumping in at astronomical rates and putting very high goals and then putting some footwork behind it letting us come out letting us you know train in their their young people letting us try to help them fill that pipeline which is the lifeblood of our industry um the uh, the city of evanston just went through uh you probably followed a little bit of it ryan field uh you know the new stadium very very heated battles um every construction project seems to get heated and i and i'm respectful for it you're building a construction project. We want that, but we need to be respectful. Respectful to the environment, respectful to the workforce, this and that. And every every neighborhood is unique, just like every you know community is unique. So there was opposition there for the stadium, but we were able to come and talk respectfully. I talked and sent letters on behalf. We have a lot of tradesmen, a lot of contractors in that area. We talked out with benefit. They had a community agreement on WBE and MBE that I believe was 40% on this new project, $820 million stadium, not a single dollar of tax money, lowering the seats, increasing parking, a lot of pluses. Neighborhoods, they were going to have concerts. That was the, the point. And when you talk about, you know, we've been talking about the, the you know, the state of the, our country right now and the, the divisiveness. Well, this was a very divisive issue in that neighborhood. And it was handled with respect. It went to the aldermen voted four and four, 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 four against. Mayor Dan Biss had to make the deciding vote. He allowed, you know, allowed input. He suspended the rules all the way up till midnight, I think they went. It was when it got disrespectful, he curbed it politely. It was discourse. And and it ended up being built in the six concerts for the Tipping point, and I believe I believe that even some of the people opposed kind of came around a little bit. And also, we were there to say, "Hey, we had we're not just come Johnny come lately. Well, I've been there for years working with Evanston because they have been so pro, you know, pro diverse that 
we had to be out there to help working with their youth program, to help working with their contractors. Even Northwestern that's building this has had the same type of aggressive, you know, program. So when community, when when private company, private institutes like Northwestern University and cities like Evanston put these high diversity, you know, uh, uh, contracts together and go and make them more than goals and put some teeth behind it. Boy, they really changed the needle, and this changes people. They had Evanston-only residents, and number of residents from economically challenged areas in Evanston are in the trades today because of this. And this isn't just, you know, a, a few days ago. This is for years. So it was really a, a win for how government can work. I know there'll be people that'll that live near it'll say, "Ah, hey, you, you know, you don't live here, blah blah." But uh, I really believe it was really respectful and 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 a positive way to show how government can handle a conflict respectfully and move on. Joan, I think you know I'd like to bring in Dr. David Sanders, president of Malcolm X College now, because I'm wondering how uh, the DEI discussion has shifted in the education space, particularly since the affirmative action decision was grounded in how we populate colleges, you know, how we populate universities. I mean, what are, has the conversation shifted and, and what is the goal with diversity, equity, and inclusion? Is that still a goal? I mean, do we want to be diverse? Do we want to create equity? Do we want to be inclusive? Well, thank you, Santita. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this conversation. And, and certainly it is a particular issue for education. But, you know, we've made decisions uh, to continue to include diversity, equity, inclusion in every single thing we do, because it's absolutely essential for students to be successful. You know, when we when we talk about equity, uh, I think there is this misnomer or misunderstanding that that means being equal. And it doesn't mean that. Um, equality and equity are two different things. Equality is when you're delivering the same thing to everybody at the same time, right? But equity means you're meeting people where their need is. One people, person may need more. One person may need less. You're meeting them where their need and you're helping them to be on par with everyone else. And that's what's necessary. When you think about some of the populations that we serve, some of those students have not had uh, the education they need. They haven't had uh, the resources. Uh, you'd be surprised that computer literacy now is a bigger issue as we go in uh, to the you know, far into the 21st century. We have an issues with computer literacy. People don't even know how to use the computers and we're having to address those issues. That's a part of equity. All of those things are things that we have to do. And so we're going to continue to do those things. Um, you know, as far as, you know, uh, community colleges are concerned, we're already dealing with individuals. And, and because we have diversity, I have about 40% of my students are uh, African-American. I got about 40% uh, percent who are Hispanic. I got 10% are white. I got 6% are Asian. So I'm all over the board, right? So we're mm -hmm. already diverse. And so it's it's a part of our DNA 
to ensure that we're addressing the needs. When we have student activities, we have student activities for every segment of our population because we have all of those uh, demographics that we have to address. And so we want to ensure that everybody feels that there's a sense of belonging, that you know you know that someone is going to support you in your educational pursuits and that this is home. Um, and you need to be in an environment where you feel like you know people want you there. Uh, just think about have, if you go into a place and, um, you know, you get the feeling that uh, this ain't the place I'm supposed to be. Uh, It's not a really good feeling. And if you had that with education, uh, that doesn't lend itself to success. So in our environment, it's absolutely essential that we do everything to ensure that there's a sense of belonging, that you feel like we represent you, that you can see yourself within the institution in every way so that we can get you across the finish line. I know that at Malcolm X, you do have an incredibly diverse student population, but what went through your mind when you read about the Supreme Court ruling striking down the affirmative action programs at other universities across the country? Joan, I, I, I thought about the fact that we've come so far and yet we have so far to go. Right. That we've really lost our way. Um, and, and I, and I want to be clear and y'all forgive me. Uh, I'm having camera issues. I have another, I'm out of town and I have another uh, computer I was trying to get onto. Uh, but for some reason you can't see my image, but I'm here. Uh, but anyway, um, I feel you. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, for me, um, this was a, a significant part of my leadership of Malcolm X is that, you know, when I came there, a lot of our folks were upset about the fact that students were coming there um, and and were deficient in their learning uh, status and that, you know, we had to do so much on a short time frame to get them across the finish line. And I said to everyone, look, what if that was your child? What if that person walking through the door came out of your loins or was your family? What would you do to help them to be successful? It changes the discussion, right? Because I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, would do everything we possibly could to make sure that our child got the best education, the best opportunities, the best of everything we could give them. So in saying that and making that a model of our institution, we look at this from the perspective of every single student that walks through that door is our child and we got to do everything possible to remove the barriers for them to be successful. So the Supreme Court does what they do. Okay, fine. I can't change what the Supreme Court does, but I can change the dynamics for every single student that walks through that door. If I've got to be there an extra hour to help them, if we got to grab them by the hand and help them to know that you can do anything and you can be anything and there's nothing that can stop you, we're going to do that. If we have to put some extra supports around you to help you to know that you can be successful, whatever it takes, we have to do that to make sure our students are successful. You know, you've got an amen corner with Jan, Diana Alfaro and Trent Spoolstra. Oh, my goodness, from the ADL and from the Office of Minority Economic Empowerment. I mean, you're about to fall out of your chair, Trent. What about what he what is he saying? I mean, because, I mean, the Jewish community has a history of partnering with the outsiders, 
the people who, who are at the bottom. I mean, talk to us. I mean, there's something about what there's something about what he was saying that was really resonated with you. No, and with you too, Diana. But let me start with you, Trent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, David, I think you you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I, some of the things that we have been seeing nationally from a wide variety of political um, initiatives and, and from the Supreme Court or Congress or elected officials or, or things like that. And I, I think you summed it up perfectly, David, of, of, yes, we've come far as a society, but we have a long way to go. And it feels like there are times and here at the EDL as well, too. There are times it feels like we're taking step backs of things that we work so hard to accomplish and to fight for, in some cases, decades or centuries. And it gets and it gets pushed back. And it's, you know, I tell people, you know, I love love working for the Anti-Defamation League. I think ADL is a fantastic organization. One day, there will, hopefully there won't be a need for it. But over what's been taking place with, with hate in the United States over the last several years, that um, it's become apparent for a lot of folks that it's like organizations like ours and the ones, the final fellow panelists, still need to exist because of the things that have been happening over the last couple of years in this country. So, David, David, I, lo- I love what you were saying. Well, you know, Diana. Your thoughts? Um, for me, and I agree with what um, what everyone was saying. It's it's yes, we have come so far, yet we have so much more work to do. And it's also educate educating because I remember when the, the Supreme Court case came down, and my sister and I were speaking about it. My nieces mm-hmm. and nephews were like, "Well, so why is this really important? Like, what's going on?" They're they're smaller, right? They're like mm-hmm, yeah. eleven and and ten, and and so they're trying to like. I think for many, many years is we got uncomfortable. They were like, we're progressing, we're moving forward, right? Um, we have affirmative action, we have this, we're, we're, we're increasing in our numbers. We're having DEI conversations and training. And then boom, we have things that push us back. And so it just shows that there's still a lot more work to be done, not get comfortable and be like, oh yeah, there's certain things in place, we're okay. That we're making progress, knowing that that progress could be shattered at any moment. We have to keep pushing forward and controlling what we can control. As you know, Dr. Sanders was saying, like he can't control the Supreme Court, but yet he could control everything that's happening in Malcolm X. So in the spaces that we're in, right, we need to make sure we're controlling it and, and pushing to ensure that there is this diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're being intentional and we're trying to push everyone forward. Yeah. Uh, Deanna, uh, Dr. Sanders, um, uh, Trent, Dan, Amber, we are going to be taking a break for news and weather, and we're going to continue this great discussion about diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. There you are. We see you now um, in education when we come right back after this. For those of you listening to us on the radio, you are missing how great we all look today. We are so pleased to uh, welcome our Zoom audience as well. Um, we have been talking about different aspects of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, right before the break, we started in on the topic of DEI when it comes to education. And I think we're going to stay on track with that for uh, the next cool. few minutes. Well, you know, Joan, I think that the whole panel is diverse, no pun intended, as they are. There are education components to all of 
them. I mean, to the work that they do. And so, you know, Dan Allen from Cisco, uh, and we want to hear more about what it is that you do, Executive Director of the Construction Industry Service Corps, uh, Trent Spoolstra, uh, Associate Regional Director for the Jewish Community and Young Leadership Engagement of the ADL, Diana Alfaro, Office of Minority Economic Empowerment, Amber Holst-Wilson, Operations and Flourish Research. We need to know much more about these, about being part of studies for medical research because we all need it so much. Dr. David Sanders, who is the president of the Mighty Mighty Malcolm X College. And oh yes, I made it Mighty Mighty over there by Whitney Young where I went to school. Thank you very much. But, um, you know, Joan, I want to just, we've had a, quite a shakeup with DEI, particularly in the education space. Um, not just the academic space, but now people do not know how to approach DEI in the post, uh, in the post affirmative action world, if you will, because affirmative action was gutted, just like voting rights. It was gutted. And so the question is, how do you approach it? Because you do need teachers of all backgrounds. Trent, we do need to know how to get along and understand each one another's histories. Deanna, we need to understand how important it is that everybody's in the workspace. We need, we need, Amber, we need people, like you said, of every background participating in these studies because everybody's got, well, everybody wants to be healthy. Let's put it that way. And Dan, everybody wants to work, you know, so uh, let's start with you, Dr. Sanders. I mean, because you have this ministerial zeal about the education, what, be it vocational education or academic. Why is DEI important right now? And how I've said that, I said it to you on the other side of the break, but really, what is your approach without getting into trouble? Teachers are afraid to teach in, in Florida and in more and more places. They're afraid of, Joan, they don't know what to say. How do you, I mean, how do you, how do you how do you present DEI in in this new, in this new world? I, I, thank you, uh, Santita. I really appreciate that. Again, um, you know, I think when we uh, when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, really what it's talking about is collaboration, right? All of us coming together and and coming together in a way for us to find the best solution, resolutions to problems, issues, um, things that we need to address as a whole. And we want to be inclusionary, but everybody that needs to be impacted. Um, and, you know, if we think about it, our nation is designed uh, for collaboration, right? Not one senator can necessarily drive, right, a policy. It takes 60 of them to come together to push something across the finish line. Not one state representative can push something through. They got to get other people involved and to agree that this is something that we need to do. So if our institutions uh, of, of, of governing have this as um, a, one of the the, the ways in which we arrive at policy, why aren't we doing this wholesalely across our nation? Because it is the way that we arrive at the solutions that's necessary for all the persons. Everyone's voice is important. Everyone's voice is important. And I, I can't stress that enough. And so we do that at our college you know, we have a collaboration. We have what's called shared governance, uh, where there's an opportunity for us to get 
the feelings of our faculty, our staff, our students, and make sure that the policies, the programs, everything that we're doing is reflective of what their needs are. You will never know what people need until you ask them. We have perceptions about things and, and our perceptions many times are not right because we only we make those perceptions off of what we see, think or feel. Right. But it, is it true when you sit down and talk to somebody and you understand why they feel a certain way or why their views are a certain way? You, Oh, I didn't know it was that way. Why? That's what's necessary for us to have that collaboration uh, and get come up with a comprehensive solution that's going to help everybody it's supposed to cover. Hmm. Well, I think we can just go all the way around the panel, Joan, with this. I mean, because Deanna Alfaro, I mean, we still have a huge pay gap amongst colors, gender. Um, how do you, I mean, in this environment, even as the Supreme Court has made the decision that it's made about affirmative action, we still need to be affirmed and we still need action. <laughs> we still, you know, as you said, as you were talking to the the generation behind you, they're like, well, what's the big deal? It's going to be okay. And you're like, no. And I mean, in this office of minority economic empowerment, that's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Milk costs the same for everybody, but everybody's not making the same amount of money for the same for the same kind of work. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more transparency and, and comfortability having conversations and sharing how much each person's making. Right. Um, and, and I deal, I have conflict with that too. Um, but not working in the state, my salary is public. So I'm like, I'm starting to get more comfortable. I'm like, everyone can just Google me. And it's just that easy. Um, and I think many times we don't have those conversations. And that's where it's hurting us because then someone else is making two times more or half more. And we don't even know. And, and you're doing more work than that person. It's just not having those conversations. And then I think sometimes it's culture based too. Like, I was raised like you be very loyal to your employer, right? You stay there for a really long time. Be happy you have a job. Be grateful that you have a job. So don't ask for more. Don't push for more. And I think we need to get out of that realm of where it is okay to ask for more and to advocate more for you. And so I think there is um, more conversations that need to be done. I know in OMI, we're starting to do a lot more trainings with individuals on their businesses and being comfortable talking um to their employees and we need to do a little bit more on that. We've been more on the business owner, but I think it's more having those uncomfortable conversations and trying to get a little bit more comfortable with it. And I know myself, I still deal with that as well. Deanna, like you said, your salary is public, but you know, there are still big companies that make disclosing your salary, a firing offense because they don't want other people in your department. And we hear, we read about these things all the time. Some, a woman leads a department. She hires a new guy. And two years later, she finds out that this guy she supervises is making more money than she is. Um, I mean, I really think, you know, this is one area where the government and legislation has to take a stronger stand because, um, Companies, a lot of companies are not listening to their better angels. Dan, that's one of the things that I think is so great about the trades. You know, here's the job here, you know, for this level of experience to do this particular job, this is what it pays. Doesn't matter if you're black or white or a woman or a man. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish we had more of that, Dan. 
Yes, you know, one of the things we are proud of is there is no gender gap pay in ours, uh, which is which is huge. And uh, we all do make the same, uh, you know, first year, second year apprentice, every single person right up to journeyman makes the exact same. That um, So that is one of the things we're proud of, and that's the collective bargaining agreement that I wish more and more workers were. That This equity gap, I believe it's fueling most of the disgruntled anger and all that out on the on the street. People want to be mad at something. This isn't working. And the and the equity gap has been, you know, the the we've seen it. The CEO type salaries going up three, five hundred times what working people are. And luckily there has been an upswing and approval ratings for unions have never been higher. Organizing you we, we've seen recent strikes outside the building trades, but by unions, UPS and the auto workers, and they've gotten finally gotten, you know, some decent-sized wages. I still don't think it's enough when you see that they're, they're the ones that paid to allow the corporations to stay in business years ago. They're the ones that made the sacrifices. And at the top of the line, well, if the company does well, we'll find a way to bail them out. Like, oh, God forbid we help somebody with a with a food stamp in the, or a, or a unemployment or something during their, their time of, of need. Or even, you know, with our migrants where we start turning on each other. So, uh, you know, like Dr. Sanders said, it's collaboration of human beings, every single place. And I like when he got fired up because I can get fired up too. It's like, (laughs) stop, stop it, stop, stop, you know, that. And I'm proud that on on the contractor side, we work with employee, you know, employers, union contractors, business owners. And I'm proud to say that their mindset, the majority of them, sit down and respect the workforce. We haven't had strikes, we haven't had, and they do agree to safe working conditions and this and that for the most part. There's some bad actors there, and you know, and there's bad you know, union workers that aren't given their full time on the job too. But for the most part, this collaboration is really something that, that, that I think helps, you know, working people and the contractors, because you know, we want them to make a profit as long as they agree to, the, to, to keep us safe with safety conditions and a fair wage and health insurance. Well, Amber, is it, are you finding in a post-COVID world, is it easier for you to have these conversations with people, particularly people of color, marginalized communities? And I would have to put, you know, like I said, Trent, I have to put the Jewish community in it because we have, we've dealt with, you know, as Diana said, medical experimentation. I mean, that's just a, that's just a real thing. And now you're seeing poor whites deal with the closing of hospitals, the closings of hospitals and things like that. Um, do you have to code switch? Is there, I mean, have you had to reshape the conversation? In, because basically we've all undergone a giant experiment trying to beat back this horrific virus. I mean, talk to me. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that. COVID is absolutely life-changing. Um, interestingly, in the medical research field, you know, half of community-based research sites actually had to close their doors because they weren't able to pivot based on their business model to mm. take on the COVID research, which at the time was the only thing that was keeping doors open. And then, you know, 
it's also we're not affiliated with large healthcare systems at the time. We weren't even part of a research network and trying to go through the process of getting, you know, paytech protection loans and seeing it go to the chase banks of the world as opposed to us trying to find a way to combat and stop this pandemic um, was really interesting. So we actually at that point, we leaned into our partners. Um, so the COVID research, we actually partnered with Swedish Hospital, which is down the street from us to where we were able to conduct inpatient research studies for individuals who were hospitalized pre-ventilation for COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and interestingly, Swedish hospitals in a very ethnically diverse community. Um, so our enrollment in that clinical trial, and it was looking at rheumatoid arthritis drugs for the secondary inflammation that occurred for hospitalized patients for COVID. And we have the most diverse enrollment in that trial. And I think about the patients that we consented in a hospital remotely during COVID with their family members and a translator on the phone. They were able to get exemplary coverage um, and care. So they still had their standard of care, but they have this adjunctive therapy added on. And the sponsor was able to offset the costs of their long-term medical stays. I mean, you had some individuals who were vented for up to a month. That is absolutely debilitating. And then you think it's a household. You have multi, multiple generations living in the same house with a highly infectious yeah. disease. Like it's just, it was um, really important to be a part of that. So. Our business changed after that. We were happy to have new new research studies open and to be able to go back into the community and do educational talks. We did some of them via Zoom just to stay in touch and telehealth, to stay in touch with our patients. We do a lot of Alzheimer's disease research. These individuals are with us for two, two and a half years. And, you know, we even had one study that was looking at exercise. We partnered with the YMCA. We all know exercise is good for us, right? We put the scientific method behind it. Is low-dose exercise as good as high-dose? So something more cardio-based, like light walking, jogging, or cycling, compared to like Tai Chi or yoga-type movements. Did that increase cognition in individuals over a year and a half period? Pandemic hits. Here's people getting great exercise, free YMCA, personal trainer. They're getting their memory assessments done and feeling great about themselves and this research study, which was a government-funded study, then the the YMCA shuts down. Well, and how do we get in there to make sure that we stay in touch with them to keep the research going? And so we would do virtual sessions with them. to. So we just had to adapt and pivot. And I think it goes back to, I think, everyone in the group, especially, you know, Dan, like, you got to meet people where they are. And how can we figure figure out a way to bring this to these patients because they will still benefit from it? And even talking about the equitable pay and whatnot, I I agree with that. I think it goes for our workplace environments, too. I want our team to know how valued they are and to ultimately be better for having worked here. And we do it based on here's your comp set for the position that you're in. This is the low end. This is the high end. Our goal is to get you here in this time period. And let's continue to advance you and grow you. And you know, that enables them and empowers them. Even if they go somewhere else, they know what kind of questions to ask and have an idea of what they should be earning in the communities that they go to. So I was just kind of a little bit all over the place there, but 
<laughs> no, I thought, I thought it was quite focused because we need to know all of that because right. everything hit us all at once. I mean, yeah. we were locked in at home and then needed to go out and get tested. I mean, there was just a lot that hit us at one time and we're still struggling with that, Joan and Amber and the panel today. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, another thing too is now that, you know, obviously things are reopen, et cetera, it's been difficult because, you know, our, the research are like, okay, it has to happen on site. Mm, does it? Not everything does. You know, there's been a culture shift that there are certain things that can be done remotely and don't require necessarily an in-clinic visit. So we have to use our voice to advocate saying, we know our patients, this visit activity and schedules that have to happen are too too intense and it's not conducive to the the work-life balance that they have to still be a part of this. So how can we bring it to them? And um, for the most part, I'd say 90% of the time, we win that battle and they change the protocol to accommodate that. So you have to ask, you have to ask. What are some of the ways you make that accommodation? What are some of the workarounds? Absolutely. So we can go to, the, say, the, the sponsor. When we use that term in research, that means usually like a pharmaceutical company or the device company. And we can say, you know, it's kind of an aggressive schedule because um, if you have to do blood work, right? Blood work enables us to see what something does in the body. Okay. So you usually have to be fasted. So you have a very short window of weekdays of when you can do that so you can get your lab results back. My thing is there's home health care agencies. Why don't, doesn't the sponsor work with them? That way they get delegated, right, to be able to perform these tasks and they can bring it to a patient's home and then be able to do it on their time, what works for them. So we just say, here's three options that could be a solution to get us there. Which one do you want to go with? And it's just knowing how to ask those questions up front and saying, you know, just because we've always done it this way, that has to change. A hundred percent, it has to change. And we're getting there. It's it's a slow roll, but <laughs> you think I'm feisty. I'm scrappy. I'm a little south sider. So I'm like, let's go. <laughs> I love it. You know, Trent, I want you to jump on in here um, because one of the one of the things that I admire most about the about the Jewish community is that you have fought to make America more inclusive because you understand exclusion. I mean, how can we make advances in this space today? I mean, we're, we're trying to narrow the focus. We don't want everybody to get into the United States, you know, just a few of us. Um, and then we don't want everybody to get into a college. We don't want everybody to get into a profession. We're, doing, we're excluding, we're trying to, some of us, not all of us, because this young generation, they've already gone down the street on this. Some of us are trying to narrow, um, are trying to narrow the path when, please, the rivers become an ocean. You know, so so talk, I mean, what is your approach? What can you bring? What, what do you want us to know in this conversation in all of the work that you've done about the, about the importance of DEI? Absolutely. I mean, I, I can tell you DEI is incredibly important to the Anti-Defamation League. And Santita, I'm glad that you pointed out the Jewish community and in its inclusiveness and its fight for justice. You know, I think it's great. We have Dan on here from, you know, representing labor. When, when the vast majority of American Jews immigrated late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of Jewish, recent Jewish immigrants were involved in the labor rights movement. Um, it's great to have Dr. Sanders on here and others regarding looking at the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. You know, there were very- I mean, starting our unions. 
yeah. so many of our unions were started by Jewish activists. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, I think in the Anti-Defamation League, we've been around for 110 years, we were involved in a lot of those things, right? And I think mm-hmm. specifically today when it comes to DEI for our work, um, a lot of it is education and really educating educating the next generation and educating adults who are willing to listen, who are willing to learn, right? I'll, I'll give an example. So here at at ADL, um, oftentimes, not always, there are a lot of companies, there are a lot of universities that do a great job with this. Um, there are others that oftentimes leave anti-Semitism out of DEI education, not purposely, right, but partly because of, of seeing, right, because of other, certainly other uh, groups that, that need to be learned about, right, that need to um, collaborate. One of the things that ADL has done is we've actually created a workplace, um, anti-Semitism workplace training module that can easily be fit into companies or universities or schools already existing DEI education methods. One of the other things that I do is actually I do, um, I've given a number of presentations in person or via Zoom where I talk about Jewish diversity. Um, and one of the things that I kind of joke about is, I, and I, I'm thinking about my slide deck while I do my presentation, I have a slide I put in a picture of a Jewish deli and I have Jerry Seinfeld and I have the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and I explain to folks, this is what most Americans think of when they think of Jews, right? And, and yes, those things are definitely Jewish. I don't take it at all, but explain to folks what's there between Ashkenazic and Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, mm-hmm. that there were Jews from the Middle East that existed for centuries, right? That there are African-American Jews. They're Jews of Latinx descent, of Asian descent. Um, and I think when, when people hear that, it's, it's not because it's, not, it's certainly not necessarily hateful or, you know, they didn't, they just, they never knew. And they're like, oh, well, I just, I saw Jerry Seinfeld, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I thought, oh, all Jews look like him. And it's like, no, actually, we're a lot more diverse than we give. So we do a lot of trainings in terms of understanding Jewish diversity and understanding what anti-Semitism really is to, to fit into um, existing DEI trainings that a lot of companies, a lot of organizations already have. That's amazing, you know, given that. Judaism was born in Africa, and that people don't understand the diversity within that community, um, yes. and in particularly, and particularly now, because we in the United States and in the West really have a Jew, have a European representation yes. of the Jewish community, and like you said, it's not true. And I think that that would be helpful. I mean, as we begin to fight through. So much of the pain that is coursing throughout the society. I know we're going to be talking about that in the next block, but I think that this is something that is impacting everybody. Um, what do I mean? And just given that this is where we are right now, and quite frankly, we've been here for a long time. It's just bubbled back up to the surface. Uh, what do you think that the Jewish community in particular has to bring to the DEI discussion? Absolutely. I think several things. I think what's interesting about Judaism in particular or Jews are, I think most people view it understandably so as as a religion, right? Oh, this is my Jewish faith. When really, I think understanding the essence of what it means to be Jewish is it's it's a peoplehood. And what's interesting about Jews are, and so you pointed out, I believe there were, the last statistic showed, I believe one out of eight American Jews, young American Jews today, um, are people who are biracial. Or, or triracial, right? These are Jews that maybe they have one parent who's Jewish, maybe one parent who's of a different race, or they have a parent who is Jewish and African-American or Jewish and Hispanic, right? So, I mean, there, there's a lot of diversity there. And what, what makes the, the Jewish space particularly interesting is that it's a very diverse group of people. 
um, and understanding, not just educating, honestly, outside of the Jewish community about how diverse we are, but also even within the Jewish community of understanding we're a really diverse group of people. You know, it's like we all, unfortunately, a lot of us get stuck in our silos or we get stuck in our neighborhoods and we forget, oh, there are not everybody things like me. Not everybody eats the yeah. same foods that I eat or worships the same way that I do or goes to this synagogue or goes to this church like I do. A lot of diversity even within a group like the Jewish people. Well, I think that makes Jewish people, Joan, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? Because we all have a lot of diversity with, within our own families. Within our yes, own communities, I, I, we in, all do. In the lead up to Thanksgiving, I was, you know, we were talking about how we have the difficult, when everybody comes together for Thanksgiving, how do you have the difficult discussions? And, you know, I, I gave the example one of my uh, guests gave that think of it as a Venn diagram and find that little part <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> where you where you overlap because there's going to be a lot on the outside, guys. Um, mm-hmm. panelists, we need to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk. We're going to start with a diversity in the business community. But um, I also, before we wrap this up, I want to talk about hate speech, yep. which, uh, as uh, Santita said, you know, so mu- so many things that we thought we were trying to put a lid on have bubbled back up again, and that certainly seems to be one of them. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion panel. We'll be right back after a very short break. Let's just take control of this panel. Those I love it, Joan. Go, girl. Yes, yes. We don't need anybody back at the studio to tell us what to do. Um, I'd like to reintroduce our panel members, Amber Holst, Amber Holst Wilson with Flourish Research, uh, Trent Spoolstra with the Anti-Defamation League, Dan Allen from Cisco, um, Diana Alfaro is from the Office of Minority Economic Empowerment, Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, and of course, Dr. David Sanders, last but certainly not least, the um, president of uh, Malcolm X College and on the Executive Service Corps Board of Directors. Um, we learned in the break that Deanna has some breaking news to mm-hmm. share with all of us. Deanna, what happened this morning? So this morning at 9 a.m., our agency released the uh, Back to Business New Biz Grant. So this is a grant to support um, businesses that opened in 2020 or 2021 that were impacted by the pandemic and um, are looking for grant relief. So that program opened up. It's B to B or it's B as in boy to the number B as in boy new biz B I Z dot com. That's the we're working with Lindustry that is a partner with us. Um, the deadline is January 11th at 1159 p.m. However, funds are limited, so I highly recommend if you're interested to apply earlier. And we have, as we were talking earlier with like Amber mentioning the organization she partnered with, et cetera. We have organizations that we also partner with that can work with you in multiple languages, set up an appointment, in, you know, in person or virtual that can assist you at no cost to apply for this program. So if you need assistance, we have individuals for for you. Wonderful. Great. That's so that's so nice to announce. It's great news. Great news. Well, you know what, Joan? Um, I think we just need to hop over here uh, because this is um, we're in the holy season. And um, interestingly enough, we're in a time in which the world is on edge, you know, in really in a place that's really the center of. Uh, the three 
major religions of the world, but it really is just, it's really just a good old fashioned human conflict, right? That's really what it is. People struggle with justice. They struggle with revenge. They struggle with how we're going to share the resources. We just struggle, 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 struggle all the time. And all these millennia later, it seems like Americans, not Americans, people just we're still trying to figure it out. So I wanted to start with you, um, Mr. Spoolstra from the ADL, about how we, how we have conversations, really, um, in this moment that is fraught with so much tension. Because we're looking at hate speech, but is there what, first of all, I need you to define hate speech in this diverse society, increasingly diverse society that we're in, and distinguish between hate speech and just critique. Good point. Yes. So I can start off here, right? So hate speech, right? It is uh, expression of, of strong emotion against an individual or a group um, based on prejudice, based on bias, right? Usually based on unconfirmed notions, right, which is essentially what, what stereotyping is. And, and hate speech, when it gets to that point, um, it, almost a sense like a fervor, like almost a sense of, of hatred. And, and what ends up happening, and this is what's interesting, and I'd love to start to start off with this, and this may not be the thing that your viewers want to hear, but largely hate speech is free speech. That's the tough part. Um, that's something here at ADL. To be very clear, the Anti-Defamation League, we are very much a, a First Amendment organization. We adhere to the First Amendment. And as you mentioned, Santita, especially over the last several years, there has been a lot of just raw emotion. There's been a lot of hatred, things that we thought, issues that we thought were settled or ideas that we thought were arcane are coming back to the forefront. Again, that's why ADL, where we've been on on the front line, so to speak, in terms of of trying to combat this speech. And and what's tough is, and I work with individuals, I work with organizations, especially when it comes to anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic speech. Um, and they ask us, you know, it's like, what what are you all going to do about it? And the thing that we can do is, and what at ADL we believe is that the best way to combat hate speech is with more speech. And specifically inclusive speech, right? Because as much as we would love with certain groups or individuals that we think of, the you know, or natural, I think human instinct is we want to shut it down. This is uncomfortable. This is offensive. This is hateful. This is hurtful. And that's our natural instinct. But the thing is, as long as individuals are not crossing a line, whether it's defamation, whether there's a direct threat, whether they're, um, you know, you can't go to a street corner, for instance, and just start shouting people's social security numbers and their personal information, right? Um, but as long as people are following the First Amendment, they have a right to say things that are are hateful and they're ignorant, ignorant, right? But one of the things that we teach at at ADL, right, because we we obviously definitely stand for the First Amendment, but at the same time, educating folks and saying, well, how can we counter hate speech with inclusive speech? How can we counter stereotyping? How can we encounter counter bias so that folks who may not know a lot about a specific topic, right, or a specific group of individuals. They don't fall prey to those stereotypes or those bias, and they lead down this road that can eventually lead to just full-blown hate. Um, so it has been certainly at Anti-Defamation League, other anti-hate organizations, it has been an uphill battle for the last several years of saying, yes, we don't like what certain individuals are saying or certain groups are saying. They have a right to say it, but we're going to counter their hate speech with our own speech of inclusivity. 
But you know, it's interesting, you know, we're seeing up at Harvard, for example, and, and many other schools, Dr. Sanders, uh, there is an attempt to shut down discussions, right? And, um, and it's, it's becoming increasingly uncomfortable. I mean, you see the fire that I think it's Dr. Gay, who's the new president of Harvard. You see she's under fire because it seems like she just can't get it right instead of letting people speak. And then, you know, and then, how how do you navigate that as an educator, and particularly what you, you're supposed to be setting an example? How, how do you do that? How do you have free speech, hate speech, healing speech? I, I don't, you know, where else do we, I mean, what do we do? I mean, because you don't want to shut, I mean, think putting a lid on things, Joan, doesn't let the air in. The way you kill an infection is to give it sunshine and air. Yeah, as a- <laughs> so, I mean. As an educator, uh, it's very, very difficult, and, and especially when you're leading an institution, right? Because one of the requirements we have is that if you allow speech on one side of the equation, you have to allow speech on the other side of the equation. And that's a requirement that you have. So, you know, just opening that door means that you're opening the door for all kinds of opinions or perspectives uh, to be given. And then you're associated with that. Right. So it, it's very difficult as an institution that, that policy needs to be one um, that you are you have talked with all the stakeholders and you try to get you know involvement and try to find the right space um, for that particular situation. Situation. It's not going to be the same across uh, the country or, or across the spectrum, but you certainly have to come up with a way uh, to make sure that, you know, everyone is whole uh, because it, it's very difficult. But I, I think an important element that we need to address is that we all are born into this world with different perspectives, backgrounds, um, and views, right? And those views come from some place. It could be our family, our environments, the people that we come into contact with. All of these things begin to shape us. What's really important is for us to understand that those are views in time, in space that can change and should change. And we've seen that. And I, I want to share this really quickly because I think it's really important that, you know, in where I grew up and, and, you know, my mother was a single mother. Um, we were, we grew up in low income housing. And so, you know, there were a lot of people who were there and looked like us and what have you. Um, and there was a lot of viewpoints about, um, you know, uh, white people, Caucasians, and it wasn't positive. Right. Um, but my mother who saw in me something, uh, that I didn't know I had at the time, uh, decided to send me to a Lutheran school. And at the Lutheran school, mm-hmm. I met two, two guys and I won't, I can't say their names here, but cause I don't have their permission, but, uh, we were, all three of us were on the basketball team. And let's just say that, uh, his name was Binky. Binky, uh, invited me, uh, to his house, right? And, um, I was like, well, you know, I gotta ask my mom. And so, you know, my mom said, yeah, you can go, right? Uh, Binky was white and my other friend was white. We both got invited at the same time and they picked me up, uh, in their station wagon, brought me to their house and we paid risk over the weekend. And, uh, we, you know, we got out, we cooked marshmallows at the fireplace and we went over to Overwise ice cream, not, you know, there's no ad here. Um, and, and had ice cream, right? <laughs> and I wasn't a black kid. I was a kid. They treated me like a kid. And it changed my perspective about things, right? 
there, you know, white people are not bad. There's good and quote unquote bad people in every race, creed, color, religion, and background, right? And that that is all relative to how you think about it, how you feel about it. What you need to do is judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not how you think about a certain situation, a certain problem. And just think about if every one of us did that. We judged people by the content of their character that that we could embody, you know, and embolden people just because we are together on being fair and equitable and being right and doing the right things. And we are all together. If we were able to do that, what a better place we'd be in. But, you know, but are we ready to have the tough conversations that get us there? Because inevitably, somebody says something that's incorrect. And what we do is now, um, Trent, Diana, Dan, Amber, Joan, we cancel people. <laughs> instead of saying, instead of giving people the space, okay, because everybody comes from somewhere. Okay. I mean, and I guess, you know, I've heard, you know, someone say, and it, it took me a minute to kind of wrap my arms around it, but I got it. People have biases and prejudices. And it's, it is what it is. It's what you do about it in that second instance that becomes a challenge, right? If you continue to act on it and stay in that. If you don't like Binky, Binky 1 and Binky 2 said to you, hey, you know, just come on because you were the black kid. But then they learned because they'll have a narrative too. They learned something by being with you, Dr. Spencer. They went. Well, he likes Marcello too. Yeah. He wants some overwife, which my mother loves, but that's not an advertisement. I mean, <laughs> he, he she loves it. She he likes this too. And you know, wait a minute, he wants to sleep late on the weekends too. I'm not the only one. He's not lazy, like the stereotype might say. He's just a kid. But I, how, you know, how do we I, have those difficult conversations where somebody might slip not slip up, they'll say something that I think Trent was absolutely right. We got to have the conversation and we can't shy away from those conversations and we need to be direct and we need to be honest. Right. But we need to do that in a way that is not offensive either. Right. Because, you know, your character shouldn't change because of somebody else. Right. If I'm going to do the right thing, I should do the right thing in spite of whatever someone else decides to do. That might not be right. Because then my actions are conditional. If I'm going to be true to myself, then they have to be unconditional and they have to be done because it's the right thing to do. Right. So I'm going to have the conversation and I'll tell you, and you could probably poll my faculty and staff. I am honest to a T. Um, I'm going to sit down and talk to you and I'm going to say, hey, you know, hey, what happened here? Let's let's talk about this and let's address it. Right. And I want to tell them why I have an issue or where there is a problem and what we need to do. And but then here's the other part that I think is so important. And I will say, hey, we're in this together. So whatever issue there is. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help us get across the finish line. Let's do this together, right? Because a lot of times what we do is we separate ourselves and we say, okay, you over there, you in your mess, and I'm over here, and you stay over there, I'm going to stay over here. Oh. I think we just may have but lost. You know, but, I think, but you know what, Dr. Joan, I think we got the gist of it. Because yeah, absolutely. We, we silo Actually, ourselves, right? I wanted to uh, bring Trent back into this too, because I... 
I agree with you that um, a lot of hate speech is free speech. I think that people can get really confused about that. And when you are confronted with hate speech, what are some of the techniques? What are some of the things mm. we can say? How do we react? How do we address it? Give us um, give us a couple of um, helpful hints here, Trent. Absolutely. I, so I think the very first thing I think it's understanding is the person willing to have a discussion with you or is it because you know, one of the things that we do at, at the Anti-Defamation League, yes, we fight bias and we fight stereotyping. We have education. We also have what's called our center on extremism that tracks hate groups, uh, folks that, quite frankly, um, that ship has sailed. They don't want to have conversations. They're, they're looking to do harm. So the very first thing I, I would look is, is this individual, first, you know, it, is the person's safety at risk, right? Is it somebody, is somebody confronting you, is somebody potentially, you know, assaulting you? If that's the case, like, definitely go to the police, right? Look for law, you know, look for safety, right? Thankfully, though, those cases, I mean, they're way more prevalent than they should be or fewer and far between. Most of the time it's, um, and I have something called specifically I do with with uh, teens, I do with adults. It's called our six simple strategies for conversation. Um, and I tell them rarely will somebody in, encounter somebody from a hate group. Sometimes it's either a coworker in front of the, the office cooler or, you know, in the kitchen when we're getting coffee or, you know, tea, whatever it may be. And sometimes they make a comment and they don't necessarily mean to be uh, offensive, right? It's it's just, it doesn't sit well with you. And it's and how do you respond to it? Um, and one of them is, and the great thing about these six simple strategies, they can be used for any group of people. I use them, I teach primarily Jewish teens and, and young adults. So I use Jewish examples, but um, one of them is the stereotype with Jews and money, right? And it's a positive stereotype where somebody might say, oh, well, everybody knows Jews are great with money, right? Or, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I've been looking into getting a financial advisor. I've been looking to get an estate planning attorney. Like, well, make sure they're Jewish. That's the best. They're the best ones to do it. And one way to respond to that, and I ex explain this to teens and adults, is explain to people, it's like, you know, that's not actually really a Jewish thing. There are plenty of Jews who, yeah, it's True, there are plenty of Jews who might be good at with banking or money. There are plenty of Jews who aren't good with that. And there are also plenty of people who are not Jewish who are lawyers and doctors and bankers who do fantastic work as well, too. So it's not an inherently, you know, there are certain qualities or occupations that are not inherently part of one ethnic group. Um, that, that itself is a stereotype. And explaining that, broadening it to universal behavior, I think is key in saying that no, actually, that you don't have to find a Jewish lawyer or banker necessarily. You can find there are plenty of people who are not Jewish who are good at those professions. So that's one example in terms of really it's about overcoming certain stereotypes, certain biases that we have in conversation where people probably don't mean harm, um, but we're just taught incorrectly. You know, we're taught those stereotypes and nobody corrected them. And having that, using that moment to correct somebody and say, you know, actually, that maybe look at it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. But what do you do when it's much more aggressive? I mean, because many people don't know that Jewish people are Jewish yep. because in America, they read you read white. But I would say even Deanna and I, you know, we read as people of color. So and people say things anyway. <laughs> Deanna, I think we, you've had the experience. They say things anyway. And it just, you know, they say the quiet part out loud. How do you how do you deal with that? Yep. Hmm. I think it, depending on the environment, whether if it's a student who is in school or if you're in the workplace or something like that, that 
hopefully the workplace and I know most schools have processing in place where you can report certain people. So it's not, we're not talking about a stereotypical comment or maybe mm-hmm. somebody doesn't, you know, mean all intent like they're asking a question, but if it gets to a point where it's aggressive or somebody feel like your life is in jeopardy or, or something, it just crosses mm-hmm. a line that hopefully there are ways to report that. Um, one thing that I do um, is hopefully if it doesn't get to a point where somebody, you feel like your life's in danger, that it's a conversation. Um, one, one example I use at the very end is saying, whoa, or saying, ouch. Um, and explaining that it's like, this isn't really a conversation to have. Clearly, you've made a statement that crosses the line. You know, it's like you're not being funny. Uh, you're, you're saying something that's hateful. You're, you're generalizing things. And, you know, sometimes I don't want to use the say, phrase calling people out, but essentially doing that. And then it's like, well, you know, time out. You've crossed the line, right? And it's trying to explain. Hopefully, the person is receptive, explaining why that is offensive. Why is that hurtful? I've always, I'm clearly not from the South, but I've always thought it was great when I read about Southern women who are confronted with something that is unacceptable or insulting and they just smile and say, well, bless you. Bless your heart. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm going to use that. I don't know if I can pull it off uh, without the <laughs> accent, but I think that's, uh, and that's wonderful because, you know, I think you're, you know, sometimes when you're in a situation, people are trying to be provocative. Sometimes I think they're trying to poke the bear, but sometimes mm-hmm. I think things just come out. And I think when you do say something like "ouch" or "whoa," then they're then they're made aware. Wait, or did I cross a line? Was that socially uh, unacceptable? There, something that they might not have picked up on had you just continued to smile and nod. Well, you know, I think that as a, as a black person, you tend to flip things, number one, because you want to get out of the room alive. No joke. <laughs> and, you know, you know, and so you learn to, you know, you become very adept and you become just really, you say, you know, you, you, because people can be sly about it. Sometimes they do mean to be offensive. But I think that as women, all of us, the women on the panel, not that we don't love you, Trent. Dan, but we see lots of things, Deanna and Amber, in the workplace where men will get the choice assignments, right? Um, Joan, you know you have seen this, and no one says anything about it. And then, of course, Deanna, in, in the space where you are, your um, your salary is public. But the fact is, white women have to work 10 months to get what a white man makes in 12 10 more months. Indigenous women have to work 11 and a half months. I mean, this issue is still with us. White women, they still make 77 cents to what a white man makes. I mean, and it's still there. It's still there. And, you know, and the little little things that people say and do are still there. I mean, what do we, how how do we work through that, Deanna and Amber? For me personally, I... I'm not afraid to speak up about it. Uh, I'm a huge, I love to advocate. No, not you. I'm very shy, few words. No, but in that instance, you know, when it is the case, that's why I get all of my data and I get my facts, right? Here's the ranges that Mm -hmm. each people should be on, you know, based on what they're bringing to the table, skill set, et cetera. Uh, That also goes to, in my industry, education, just because you can afford it and go, you know, not go into crippling debt because your parents pay for it because there's the expectation. What about these younger talents that want to grow and take advantage of tuition reimbursement that may be offered or that if they get a certification in something, we can reimburse that. 
my job is to grow people who want to work and show up. And I use that as an example for some of the more senior people who maybe this was always the path they had. This may not be as passionate. I mean, they're still very good at what they do, but they need to understand that, yeah, you're, you're not going to get an 8%, you know, annual increase. Um, cause we need to have pay equity among other individuals in the organization that are on your same level. So you're going to get three. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, you know, as we grow, provide more opportunities for you. And, you know, fortunately, I, I also look whenever I do hiring, um, I hire for culture. I hire for fit. You have to be passionate. You have to be kind. You have to be driven. And otherwise this, this environment will not, will not work for you. And that also doesn't do right by our patients. And we've even had some patients come in that, you know, and I totally agree with what Trent said. Sometimes, you know, when that ship sailed, like you're not going to get anywhere with that person. But other times, then like, as everyone said, this good insight, get to the root of what's causing you to say that? Like, let's talk about this. And then when you're calm and even and you're Teflon, I call it, but you're kind and making eye contact, they kind of back down and we're like, I really didn't mean it that way. Like, I didn't even think it would be interpreted that way. So I think in our actions, not only with our team members to uplift them and teach them how to advocate for themselves based on data sets and numbers, um, it's so incredibly important. And that goes for our patients, too. You do have the power to bring about significant change. Um, and educate and maybe even change some behaviors because sometimes it's well-intentioned and they think they're being funny. Well, no, it's really not. And you just need to understand how other people might might interpret that or how that might make them feel. And I'm very, very proud of my team. Everyone is, if they hear something that made them uncomfortable, even if someone else won't speak up, they will stand up for their colleagues um, or if they overhear like a, a disgruntled patient or something, which never happens because our patients love us. But every once in a while, um, they will bring it up. So um, myself or someone else, we have a clinical PsyD on the team. Um, we're all certified in de-escalation techniques and we can utilize that. And there's nothing more gratifying than when you turn it into a positive experience and that just makes me so happy when you can actually diffuse and get people to see and it ends well it's it's really something special and it kind of you know gives me faith in humanity again that we can actually do the things and stop some of the injustices that continue to this day you know dan i appreciate your thing at the top of the show that it's in the trades you've been having the tough conversation i mean okay. and i appreciate it and diana uh, all the work that you're doing and trent and Dr. Spencer, not that you know, we have to give our educators their handles. Amber, thank you for all of that. Joan, it's always a joy to be with you on your show, and thank you for allowing me to share with you today, my dear sister. I couldn't do it without you, and I think I've demonstrated that today. So thank you, Santita, for being here. <laughs> you have. Oh, hello. Good <laughs> evening. God bless you. And you know, I think. And happy holidays, everybody. Everybody's responsibility out there to say something when they hear it. Uh, it you know, mm-hmm. say something. You make a huge difference. And, and, and the board brought it. I mean, I have friends of every type. And when someone starts doing that, I, I, I say something. I go, I got a dear friend like that. Well, they're different. Than, no. And, and, and I'm going to get, you know, I'm once in a while think I might get my foot kicked, but. I, I, I'm not keeping quiet anymore. Uh, it, it, we can make a huge difference. And with all the denying of everything out there, 
it's ours, just like Tom Martin said, tag we're it. Tag we're it to spread this, uh, to put this type of talk in its place. We're in the garbage where it belongs. Thank you all so much for contributing to this wonderful discussion that we've had today. We appreciate it, Santita, and I appreciate it more than we can let you know. And thanks to Melissa and Matt back at the station who are uh, keeping us on track and keeping us on the air. Uh, Those are important things, too. Thanks to everybody. It has been a wonderful, wonderful panel. We are going to wrap it up now and uh, throw it to news. And uh, have a wonderful evening, guys.